you're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, beautiful listeners. So glad you could join me today. One of my all-time favorite guests joins me on the podcast. His name is Mr. G. Cassard or Coach G. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Some of you have told me that your favorite episodes are the ones where the guest shares actionable advice. I'm a fan of that too, but what I really like is a great storyteller. And with my guest today, you're going to hear great stories and get actionable advice. Some of that advice just might save your life. That's because G was diagnosed with colon cancer at just 43 years old, and he shares great insights on what he experienced and symptoms he was having. I don't know about you, but when somebody gets a major illness like that, I want to know how it happened. What did you see? What were you feeling? What did the doctor tell you? Give me some inside baseball, so to speak, so that if I or a buddy or a listener were to one day start feeling off, they'll know what to do and where to go. So hopefully the problem is detected early enough so that help can be had. Candor and the truth are always the best way to help people. And in this regard, G comes through. He was awesome with all that he shares. Then we get into how he sees the world differently now as a result of his battle with cancer, which I believe provides perspective for us all. But we actually don't get into his winning battle with cancer until about an hour and 20 minutes in. That wasn't by design. Truth is, I was enjoying his other stories so much that I just kind of rolled with it. There's a great story of how he met his wife, Courtney. It's going to sound very similar to how Marty and Lorraine met in Back to the Future, which is my dad's favorite movie. You'll also hear stories of when G and I were thrown out of baseball games. And if you're a regular listener... You know I like to talk about leadership. Anytime I can get a great leader on the podcast, especially someone who's positively impacted my life personally, I'm going to try to get him on. There are plenty of other podcasts with famous guests and heroes who can tell stories of becoming a billionaire. But as for me and my podcast, give me the guys from small town USA who are not only great fathers, but they've got more to give. They use their leadership ability to help more than just their families. Here I'm talking about men with the masculine capacity to shape men out of boys in the wider community. Ladies, too, helping young women. They can influence a kid who maybe all he or she needs is for somebody to believe in them. There are a few things I coach as it pertains to leadership that I'll share with you. One is, you don't need a leadership title to be a leader. You see somebody who's willing to help themselves, that could use a hand up, or would benefit from a few words of encouragement, and you offer to help them, that's it. In that moment, you're leading. That is leadership. Don't let anybody tell you different. You do not need a manager title or a head coach title to be a leader. Start leading today, whether it's your household, your team at work, the middle infielders on your softball team. Start leading. The world needs leaders now more than ever. Secondly, if You're someone who sees potential in somebody, but maybe they don't see it themselves, and so you help them to see themselves better than they are. 
That's leadership. And that's what my guest today did for me. I was probably 19 years old. I was standing out on the left field line, head down, feeling dejected, not practicing. And Coach G came up to me with words of encouragement. And it altered the course of my life. So I share that story. You know, Viktor Frankl, author of Man's Search for Meaning, survivor of the Auschwitz death camp in Poland, he once said that if we take a man as he is, we make him worse. But if we take him as he should be, we make him capable of becoming what he can be. I'm not going to question Viktor Frankl. Last thing I'll say about leadership. You probably heard me say this before. But if you're a good steward of your money, the good Lord will see to it that you get more of it. I didn't come up with that. It's something I heard and I believe. Well, the same is true of leadership. If you take good care of a few and lead them well, I happen to believe the good Lord will see to it that you're leading a whole team, if you wish, or an army, or an organization, whatever it is that your heart is set on. But you first must lead yourself and lead one or two and give them personalized attention and serve, serve, serve people. More on my guest. G. Cassard is the head coach at Ascension Catholic High School. He's also been the head coach at Vanderbilt Catholic High School and was the head coach at Loyola University in New Orleans. Before that, he coached at Nickel State, which is how I got to know him. Coach G is the man who gave me a shot to play Division I baseball, for which I'm forever grateful. He recruited me to play there. So Coach G has meant a lot to me, and I hope my respect and affinity for the man comes across in this conversation. So please enjoy my chat with Coach G. Cassard. Coach G, really glad you came, man. Thank you for being here. Man, thanks, Brad, for having me. I'm so excited. Uh, your house is beautiful, and your lovely bride, who I've, first time I've, I've got to uh, introduce and get to, get to meet her, and then obviously your lovely, your lovely daughter. It's awesome. Thank you. And you brought Cruz. I've never met your son before. Yeah, I had to bring my sidekick. He was anxious and, and ready to come to New Orleans. He loves New Orleans. And uh, also, Courtney did a little bit of research on the house and where you were living. And so uh, they're both big New Orleans fans. You know, with the pandemic and stuff, we haven't been able to, to get here as much as we like. But uh, we're excited to be here today. Now, from what I understand, he helps with the technical aspects of what you're doing now. You know, Cruz played baseball when he was young. But I think he kind of migrated more towards the analytics part or, you know, just the technical part and really fell. I think he fell in love with just the process of the game day. Now, when we're at home, he controls the ballpark, everything from the pregame music to the BP music. Uh, the way walk we, up songs, walk up songs, which sometimes <laughs> he has a lot of comments or he tries to critique because he's pretty old school, Brad. He doesn't mm. like, you know, a bunch of the rap stuff or, mm. you know, the, the modern stuff. He kind of he wants the old school stuff and he wants the the music to fit the, the baseball park and the baseball field. So he does a lot of stuff. He takes care of the umpires. A lot of times he has questions for the umpires that they can't answer. So they have to go back and kind of look up some rules. Because Cruz is a, a stickler on rules. He's a stickler on the history of the game. And he's also, you know, he has a, he has a sense of what a baseball park should feel like. You know, I guess being around the college game, the way the college game is, is, is run. Even the times that we'll go, you know, whether it's a Nickel State baseball game or an LSU baseball game, just the feel of the ballpark and the way the game flows. So he's done a tremendous job wherever we've been, you know, Ascension Catholic, Vanderbilt Catholic, 
of creating an atmosphere in the ballpark. Everything from, like we said, whether it's some Swamp Pop or it's uh, some Otis Redding, it's uh, Sweet Caroline. And Cruz has a rule that he tries not to play the same song more than once. So wow. you're a goal-oriented Man, just like you, we, we talked about earlier. So, so is Cruz. Cruz has a lot of goals. He has a lot of rules. He has a binder that uh, he carries with him that structures the, the way the game flows. Everything from the time that they go down, go down to each dugout and they grab the lineup. And the guy that's on the mic, he'll make sure that all the pr- pronunciations are correct. That we're, we're, pronunci- we're pronouncing each hitter's name or each player's name correctly. And you can imagine in South Louisiana, sometimes there's there's some that uh, that'll stump you. And then every everything from you know the home plate meeting to the opening prayer to announcing the team to you know the end of the day when you know the Bulldogs win or lose, he creates the the atmosphere. He's kind of taking bits and pieces from places that he's been. So he's very detailed, and he creates uh, he creates a great atmosphere for us. So Yankee Stadium, I've been to the old and the new, and they play songs after the game depending on whether they win or lose. So I, I believe it's Sinatra's New York, New York when they win, and then Liza Minnelli, I think she may sing the same song when they lose. But is that is that what you're trying to do? You, you play a song depending on whether they win or lose? Cruz does. That's exactly. So if if we win, if I'm not mistaken, it's usually because we're 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 Red Sox fans for the most part. Cruz is also a Chicago Cubs fan. We'll play, uh, you know, Sweet Caroline if we win, or maybe a little bit of Mardi Gras Mumbo because he's also he Good loves choice. New Orleans. He loves the singer. He loves, you know, the food in New Orleans. So he has a couple. Now, if we lose. I really don't pay attention a whole lot, Brad, because usually <laughs> my mind's somewhere else. I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm usually pretty upset with what happens. So sometimes I don't catch. He usually tells me what he had on the PA. I've always said, you're not going to like this, Cruz, but I've been a rap music fan for a long time. And I've always said, I'll grow out of rap music once they stop making good music. That's, <laughs> that's what I've always said. Do you remember the walk-up song that our, I believe he, he broke the home run record when I was in school, do you remember? I remember Rondon Anderson. Rondon well, Anderson. Look, Rondon Anderson is one of, you know, we talk about, you know, people that you always remember. Like you, you, you've always been a guy just because of, um, you know, the way you could play, the way you looked in the uniform, the way you moved, the way you ran, things that you did that always stuck out in my mind. I always remember seeing number three Bradley D on on deck <laughs> circle before you know wherever we went, whether it was Alabama, it was Baylor, wherever we played, and I always remembered about how you look. That's a Division One athlete. That's the way a Division One athlete plays. Well, Ron and Anderson was that guy as well. And if I'm not mistaken, his walk-up music was Project Chick. Because yeah. you, can't, you can't forget that, Bradley yes. D. Because I think everybody loved it. And Rondon always had that swag about him that yeah. it fit him perfect. perfect. I mean, it was perfect to a T because most of the time when Rondon was at the plate, you knew something special was going to happen. Yes. So... I can remember being on first base, Rondon comes up to bat, and I think it was Tommy Semino was coaching first, and Project Chick wasn't played. And I said, what's going on with, with Rondon's walk-up song? Where's it at? And he said, oh, yeah, we, ha- we had to talk about that. I'll tell you later. Like, focus on the, on the game. I need you to steal second base. <laughs> so, uh, from, from what I understand, you guys had talked about the song. Maybe you played the entire song in the office and, and said, 
he can't play that anymore. Is that- yeah, and, I, and I don't know. At that point, Brad, I, I mean, I was, I was a big fan of it. I liked it. I thought it fit. I thought it, it got everybody riled up. And I wasn't about to mess with Ron and Anderson the way he was swinging the bat. I mean, you're right, because you talk about a guy that had, I think, over 30 career home runs in a ballpark that wasn't made to hit a home run. No. I mean, that place is a graveyard. Yes. Now, you know, lately here they've moved the wall in and, and they've done some things to help a left-hander out. But, boy, Rondon um, had a special year. I think he had two years back-to-back where he had maybe 15 or 16. He's a single-season home run leader. and He's also the career home run leader. Yeah, he had that whip in his bat that you can't teach. Like, if you watch Bryce Harper, like the way that they – Bring the bat through the zone is just something you can't teach, and it's he had that magic, that whip. He did. He loved was, it. He was he was so fun to watch. Not only if if you know you knew Ron and just his personality, and the things that he would say, and and the times he would say it. I mean, it was nothing for Rondon to come back in, you know, after you would face a, a first rounder, whether we were playing Southwest Texas and it was Fecac or it was another guy from UTA or Lamar. Um, that was a guy that you knew was going to be really good. And the first thing I remember, hitters would always go up to Rondon and say, what you, what you see? And Rondon was always, you better swing early because you don't want to get to two strikes because that dude's, that dude's slider's nasty. Mm-hmm. But he always had great comebacks. He always had uh, great stories, and, and he was fun to watch. And I don't remember, on, on the record, I know I was not the one that was opposed to Project Chick. I can tell you that. I was <laughs> well, all for it. The name of the song is actually Project Bitch. Right. <laughs> the, the, the radio version is Project Chick. Correct. But I don't think we got that far into the song. It's just when, he, when he's walking up, you hear, da, 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 da. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. the crowd was, would get fired up. Crowd. It, was, it was awesome because, like you said, he, he usually did some things that were pretty special. I remember... You remember did we when we went to Wichita State that year? We did. That was the the bus trip from hell because yes. we we played Monroe, won two out of three, and then we had spring break, so we continued on to Wichita State. And remember, we we were on a we spent a night in Dallas for correct. some reason. We didn't get many charters back then at Nickel State, but when when we did get them, you know, you you had some expectations instead of riding on you know Big Red, which <laughs> didn't have anything. That was modern. You didn't have a bathroom. You're lucky if you had air conditioning or, or heat. You didn't have any television, TVs, or anything. So we finally get a charter bus. And I remember the guy who was driving the bus, he didn't know how to work the air conditioning. Remember that? I remember guys in the bus were basically, you were, we were down in our underwear because it was so hot. I think we, I were coming, we were coming back from Wichita State, and we were going to, to San Marcos because we were going to play yep. Southwest Texas. And played really well against Monroe. And then on our way up, we did stop in Dallas. And we get to Wichita. And it's really, really warm the first day. And you remember, Wichita State's one of those iconic programs. Yeah. Won the World Series in 1989. Always had tremendous players. You know, back in my time, and I'm dating myself, but watching ESPN in the College World Series, Wichita State was, was there every year. And always had Eric Wedge or Dreyford or Joe Carter. They always had... Just outstanding big league guys that were that were making it year in and year out. And I remember us going up that day and working out at Wichita State, and it was beautiful. Sun was out. Uh, we took some BP that day, came back to the hotel, and I remember talking to Tommy Semino, and he says, tomorrow's going to be different. I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, the wind's supposed to really start to blow. 
And he said, we may not even play. I was like, there's no way. We, we got to play. We went in the hotel. We had, uh, went to breakfast. And Tommy, he said, man, they're wind advisory. They're not allowing 18-wheelers on the interstate because when they, when they drive through, like, the underpasses, they're worried about the wind moving them off the road. So it's a safety hazard. I was like, well, surely we're not going to play a baseball game tonight if it's, the wind is so strong that it's knocking 18-wheelers off the road. Mm-hmm. But sure enough, we went. Because I remember that day, uh, Brad, two, a couple things. One, it's the first time ever in my life where I'm in a bullpen watching our guy warm up, and I have to turn my hat on backwards because if not, the wind was blowing the baseball caps off our head. Mm-hmm. So I actually had to watch our guy, I think it was Seth Shornick, who pitched that day because he's from Kansas. BD had, had used that kind of as a recruiting pitch to get him down here, and we knew we were going to Wichita State. And I remember you know, turning the hats backwards and then also talking to the outfielders and the infielders about not giving up on a fly ball because the wind was blowing so much and so strong that even if it was a fly ball to the right fielder, it may end up in left or center that you couldn't give up on it. And you always had to keep your eyes on it. So I remember us playing that night, getting back to Rondon again. He hit a couple balls there. You remember some of the home runs he hit that night in Wichita State? He hit one off the scoreboard off of one of their guys because Wichita State at that point still, they were still in the Missouri Valley and had played a weekend but they were bringing, they were going to bring back one of their, one of their guys. It was a left-hander. Rondon hit two home runs that night. Brent Kimnitz is the legendary pitching coach at Wichita State, and all those guys, obviously Tommy and BD, had history because all those guys had either played or coached in Kansas. So they they grew up with Gene Stevenson and also uh, Brent Kimnitz. But I remember Rondon. It must have been the second night. We didn't win the we didn't win the first game. I think we won we won the second game out on Wednesday because it was a short day and we got out on the road. I remember after Rondon hit the second home run and it was an absolute bomb. Brett Kemnitz is in the dugout screaming at Tommy Semino, saying, "Y'all better enjoy him this year because we're gonna turn him in. You won't have him next year." <laughs> they were so mad that we came up there and and were, you know Went were there. making those guys work and then mm-hmm. we beat their beat their butt. Uh, he was furious, and he was like, "Hey, he said, y'all, ain't, y'all better enjoy Rondon Anderson this year because he's not—he's not gonna be in your uniform next year." Yeah, I, I talk about that game quite a bit too. I say that there were 50 mile an hour winds. I don't know exactly what the winds were, but it was consistent. It wasn't like gusts of 50 miles an hour. It was, and the ball that Rondon hit that I remember—they had a big, massive, beautiful scoreboard in left center that showed all everybody's stats. You know, like you would see at LSU and other big schools. And for Rondon, a left-handed hitter, that was opposite field. He was hitting that ball, and, and all you had to do was get it in the air in the infield, and it would just take it way out. Well, when you get somebody who has power anyway and hits a ball in that direction, God, that ball took off like I've never seen. Yeah, he did. He had some manly shots, and you're right. I mean, the wind was. I don't know what it was, but it, it was blowing, and it was steady. It was a steady 40, 50-mile-an-hour wind yeah. easily. I, th- I think it was Luke Muller who was – probably our best hitter, Rondon, our best power hitter, Correct. Luke Muller, our best hitter, he hit a ball that, that was about 20 rows deep behind third base that the third baseman fortunately went over to watch it go out of the stadium. It came back in and he caught it. Right. And we were like, oh my, what are we doing? <laughs> we probably shouldn't be playing. It was nuts. Yeah, it was nuts. And I, that, was, that was the same thing. I, I couldn't believe that we were actually going to try to play a baseball game that day, but we did. 
that's a life experience that yeah. we, I know. I would, you know, South Louisiana, you're you're never going to experience something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you called it the trip from hell, so you're right. We went up to Monroe, played three. We went over to Dallas just as a rest stop, I think. Spent the night there. Then we drove up to Wichita, played two. Was it two games? Two games, two games set, and then went down south to. Texas State, which was it called Southwest it was Texas? Southwest Texas at that time. And I think they swept us. Is that they did. We we it was really like took said. us out of contention. Correct. And there was a couple you remember those games, there was there was some controversial stuff with there was a couple balls that actually chalk flew Doug up. Doug Gill foul right. ball to left field, yeah. And that, that was, was also fair. we lost the game because one of the games they didn't want to pull the tarp. Remember we had some rain and we couldn't continue and they called the game. Uh, it was the, the last game that we were out, and they would not pull the tarp. And we ended up losing the game because the field was unplayable after the rain. So there was some controversy in that trip, and it was it was a long trip. Well, it wouldn't surprise me if they had some homer umps because there are two at-bats that I distinctly remember from my playing days where I've never seen balls so far outside called strikes. And it was against LSU and Lafayette, both times in my first at-bat. And I was hitting leadoff in those games, so it's really discouraging when you're the leadoff hitter and that happens. But these balls were at least 12 inches outside, called strike three. And I'm like, how can you guys be okay with doing that? It was, you just felt robbed. And I know you remember the game at Tulane when that home run I hit Correct. was called back. Called back, yes. No, that, that, that was one of the games we talk about all the time about you know, they they made the proper call. You have the guy that's on the right field line who is down the line, Brad, and he is looking directly at it. Now, at some point, you hit that ball so far that it moved right. But it when it left the ballpark, it was clearly inside of the pole, yes. and it was fair. And what was frustrating was is that the guy that was behind the plate, Eddie and Newsom. I know Eddie Newsom, and, and once Rick Jones came out the dugout, I told BD, I said, they're going to turn this thing over. And sure enough... Rick convinced Eddie that he needed to talk to, I think it was, it was Jimmy Larison was the, the right field umpire, that the home plate umpire had a better view than the guy that was, you know, 100 feet away from the foul pole and, and reversed it, yeah, reversed so the call. Myself and the first base umpire were, were closer to the play. And so I could see the ball and the umpire in front of me. As you said, the ball was hit really well, so you had some time to look around. And I watched him point at the ball so that he could follow it with his finger and then circled his his finger as if to say home run. And the bases were loaded, so we were celebrating. Uh, Tulane had a 19-game home winning streak at that time. I think they were ranked ninth in the country. We were down four to three, bottom six. And you're right. Rick Jones comes out of the dugout. He had been coaching at Tulane for the previous, what, 15, 20 years or something. And you just felt the weight of their resources, I guess, because they were like a prestigious, wealthy school. And and here we're just little old nickel state trying to make a play. And so after that that argument, they sent our players back to the, the bases. Everybody had to go back to the bases after our big celebration. I'm sent back up to the plate. The next pitch hits me in the tricep. And I'm, I'm jogging to first thinking, okay, well, at least we've tied the game. 
That's not what happened. No, and if anybody knows anything about baseball, it was a left-handed pitcher. So it was left on left. You had to keep the front side in to be able to hit that pitch. So they called you back because they thought that you had leaned into the pitch, brought you back, and that's when things erupted. Obviously, I think you were thrown out of the game. So was was BD. And at that point, I knew he was. I'm surprised they didn't throw him out. When they, when they took the home run off the board because they knew they were wrong and they would not. And, and he did everything in his power to get dumped, and they would not dump him because they knew they were wrong. Because back in the day, and, and I later found this out, it was highly encouraged that if you wanted to umpire games at Tulane, you needed to make sure that Tulane got advantage. And most of the times, any call that was questionable, it usually went green waves away. So... That stuff was that was one of the craziest things I've ever seen that day, Brad. I've never seen anything like that where it was taken off the board. And then the next pitch, like you said, you get hit in the arm, left on left, and then they bring you back in the box so that you leaned into the pitch. So <laughs> it was really frustrating. It was, it's, it's a game that I'll never forget. It sticks out in my, my mind. I can remember those events like it was yesterday. That was, that was going to be a huge win for us. The, the following weekend, we played at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas, and Eddie Newsom was behind the plate again. And I was warming up in the outfield before the game, and he walked up to me, and I'm seething. I mean, I, I can't stand this guy at this point. I still don't like him. And he says to me, hey, Brad, you know that ball was foul, right? As if he was trying to convince himself. I couldn't believe that he had the gall to come up to me. and That was the only Grand Slam I had ever hit in college to that point. I was so mad. Golly, I'm still mad about it. Yeah, well, he, he, he knew he was wrong because there's no way on his, his guilty conscience. He wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't ask that question if, if he knew that he wasn't wrong. And, and the thing was is that it wasn't his call. And he was intimidated by Rick Jones to make that call. And that, that's what was so frustrating. And, and, you know, the game of baseball is about making a pitch, making a play. And in that moment, you did everything right. And it was taken away because, you know, guys are intimid- intimidated by a manager in another dugout and reverse the ball game. Unreal. Unbelievable. So we talked about the lack of resources at Nichols. Was it as big a problem as I thought it was when, when I was playing? Yeah, we didn't have – we weren't on equal footing, Brad, there's no doubt. I mean, 11.7 is is the scholarship, you know, limit in, in Division One baseball, and they were, there were times when uh, we were not fully funded. You know, at the time, the university, you know, we were still behind resources-wise. There was a lot of things that needed to happen on the campus, and baseball-wise was one of them. I mean, we, we just didn't have the recruiting budget that we needed. We didn't have the operations budget, and we didn't have at times – scholarship a lot of it was gender equity at times because of either adding sports whether we were bringing soccer on or um, whatever the case was we were we were limited especially coach parker's last couple years we were not fully funded not fully funded meaning we didn't have 11.7 scholarships to give out that's correct we did not have 11.7 i would say we were probably closer Officially, what we could give on the books was closer to around eight, eight and a half scholarships. Unreal. And at that time, remember, Division II schools are allowed eight scholarships. So maybe even nine. I may be wrong on that. I know they're not allowed 11.7, but Division II schools who you know actually compete at a lower level because of the resources 
But here we are at that time. I mean, you remember, Brad, the Southland had really good schools. I mean, you had four or five Texas schools were were putting out uh, really good players. They were they were investing in facilities. So were, so were the schools in Louisiana. We were behind a little bit, and some of that was just the the financial financial state of the the university. And you know, unfortunately, we we were not on the same playing field as everybody else in the league. So eight and a half scholarships. Yeah, speaking of good players, do you remember we struck out 17 times one game against a Lamar pitcher? I like to tell this story. He was the pitcher of the year in the conference. I don't think we knew who he was until afterward, or at least us players. We were like, 17 strikeouts in a game. Who is this kid? Well, his name was Clay Hensley. Do you know that I was in a bar after I graduated? He was playing pro ball by this point. I was with a friend of mine, and we were talking about steroid usage. And he was open about what he was taking. He said things like Winstraw, and he was throwing out the names. I, I never took steroids, so I didn't understand any of this. But he made it to the big leagues and was like a middle reliever. And I was watching Sports Center one night, and he actually gave up the home run that broke Hank Aaron's home run record. He gave up Bonds' Bonds, home run that, right. that broke Aaron's record. And I remember thinking... People have no idea that that little 5'10", 185-pound pitcher is probably a bigger juice head than Barry Bonds. Was, yes. And so the next year, he was suspended for like 50 games for steroid use. This is Clay Hensley from I Lamar. remember that. No, and, and the funny story about Hensley was is that at Lamar, they actually scholarshiped him for two years because they knew when he, when he left junior college, he wasn't going to be eligible his first year. So he sat out, but they still scholarshiped him for two years, even though they knew they were going to only get one because of his ability. I mean, Jim Gilligan was known for developing pitchers at Lamar and, and giving those guys a chance to, to move on to playing the big leagues. And we found out from one of the assistants that he had actually he had scholarshiped him two years, even though they knew one year he wasn't going to be able to play. He was that good. Wow. So why wasn't he eligible? Out of junior, he didn't have. I don't think he had the grades, so he wasn't eligible his first year to play Division One baseball. Out of, I can't remember if he was Alvin or if he was Temple. He was one of those junior colleges where he didn't have the grades, so he had to come in and sit out and go to school and make the grades to become eligible for his senior year. So they put him on scholarship for two years when they knew they were only going to be able to use him for one. Mm. That's how good he was. And then the hitters in our conference, do you remember UTA's lineup? UTA's lineup was pretty good. They had a guy by the name of Hunter Pence. We didn't get him out one time. <laughs> I don't know, that weekend in, in Thibodeau. He was, he was amazing. And I know there was also UC, UTA had a, it was a right-handed pitcher that made it up and pitched with Seattle for a long time. And I don't know if he's actually – he was on the Rangers roster, roster last year. And I'm drawing a blank on his name. Well, their five-hole was Pence. He was a sophomore my last year and my senior year. And then their three-hole was the hitter of the year in the conference my senior year. His name was Ryan Roberts, and he spent a lot of years yes. in the big leagues. Um, not only them, but Texas State. I mean, you just look at some of the teams that were in our league, especially in that, that the Texas area, they were producing you know, players that were not only – Great college players, but guys that were getting drafted pretty high and moving along and, and having a having a professional career. 
San Antonio was another one. I mean, they 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 had players year in year out. It was a fun league back then, Brad. That was a that was a great baseball league. But you're right, UTA had they they always had three or four guys that were uh, impact players. And Hunter Pence is a hard one to forget. Micah Hoffpower played in the big leagues. He was yeah. an outfielder with Lamar when I was there. He played on Clay Hensley's team. So I want to go back to our lack of funding, if you don't mind. How much money did you make when you were coaching at Nichols? I made when I first started out. That was in 1997. Made $12,000. I was a full-time assistant. And then the last, last year. $12,000 right, $12, a year? $12,000 a year. And then my last year, that was in 2005, I was right right below $20,000, Brad. Wow. And so you told me a story about going on a recruiting trip to Pensacola. And what were the recruiting trips like when you're making 12000 a year? I, I imagine you had trouble getting reimbursed for it was, uh, food. It was some fun times, yes. You know, you had to be resourceful. Back then, Brad, recruiting was, was different than it is today. I mean, today, recruiting, you know, you can do so much, so much about video. You have uh, the travel ball era that's going on now where they have all these showcases and events where basically they bring everybody to one area. And it's twofold. It's, it's easier, but yet it's also harder. Because back in the day when I recruited, it was about getting in the car, going down the road, getting a lead, getting a tip, going watch a guy. And then sometimes if you worked hard enough, you could find a guy that was kind of hidden off the main path and – People wouldn't know about him. So you, you could find a little diamond in the rough like that and then develop those guys. Today it's a lot harder. But but going back to, to resources and recruiting trips, it was a weekend where we, I, was, I was headed to Pensacola, Florida. It was a tournament Thursday, Friday, Saturday, even a Sunday. And there was usually three or four games a day. There was multiple teams, so you could get a lot done. You could see a lot of, a lot of good baseball, a lot of good players. Uh, at that time, there were you know state cars, so – I had a state car that I took and filled it up with, with gas. Uh, my buddy Bill Hamilton, who was the head baseball coach at Pensacola State, who is now the AD, I stayed at his house, so we didn't have to pay for a hotel room. <laughs> his wife was an outstanding cook at night. We'd have a couple of baseball guys over and, and talk about whatever went on that day, plus he would feed us. And then during the day at the ballpark, there was always a little hospitality suite, so you didn't really have to pay for food. After four days on the road, Brad, we left on Thursday, came back on Sunday night, uh, totaled up all my expenses, and it was a grand total of $15.75. And I remember this because, you know, back then everything was, you always had to turn your travel in. When you're making fifteen or $12,000 a year, you can't really afford to lose any money out your pocket. Sure. So turned in the travel expense and the only bill that I that I had was the gas bill, and I you know maybe bought a coke or a bag of chips at the uh, the gas station. So I turned in, mind you, this. So this is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, in Pensacola, Florida. I spent a grand total of fifteen dollars and seventy five cents. So I turned in my receipt, sent it up front, and I remember probably a week later. Getting the uh, you know the travel receipts and, and the travel itinerary and all the per diem stuff back, and they had a big red line through seventy five. So I was actually cut seventy five cents because I spent too much on that trip over the oh weekend. Oh my god! <laughs> and I remember that because I showed it to BD. Sometimes 
they would actually look and see maybe what route you took. So if you didn't take the, the shorter route, they would they would cut you on mileage because you could have went a, went a way that was shorter than the way that you went. So we would always kind of laugh and, and say, look, how much how much did they cut you this time? So I remember me and BD laughing. You're not frugal enough, G. you got to make sure that you eliminate that 75 cents on the road. <laughs> did you recruit Matt Overman? I did recruit Matt, Matt Overman. He was a pretty high draft pick. He was. Maddie Maddie was man, he was awesome. I that's a, that's another guy. You know, you bring up names and we're talking about players. It's amazing when you coach, you know, as long as I have, people run into one another like years, trying to separate years of players. I can remember all my players. I mean, I, that that was one of the reasons why you get into coaching is the the personal relationships and and watching those guys develop and watching watching those guys succeed. But Matty Overman, because we recruited him out of Trinidad, Colorado, saw him play. Uh, it was in a junior college tournament and had an exploding fastball and a big-time breaking ball. And we were fortunate enough to get him to Thibodeau. And he was another one of, you know, you put those lists of players or pitchers that you coached. He was as talented as, as any one of them. And, boy, he was a, a workhorse and uh, loved to compete. And he was he was one of our – one of our better ones that we ever recruited at Nichols, without a doubt. Yeah, he was the ace of staff my senior year. I told him I was going to see you today, and I, I said, what do you remember about Coach G? He said he had this unique ability to toe the fine line between being your friend and demanding your respect as a coach. And he said that that's one of the toughest things to do as a coach, and G was just great at it. He said you could talk to him like one of the boys, but at the end of the day – you knew what he expected and demanded from you. And that was the main reason that my second year, I'm quoting him, that's the reason my second year at Nichols was such a success. You don't get to places, especially in athletics, on your own. And there's a lot of talent out there that gets wasted because they never had the coaches that they needed. And G was definitely a coach that I needed. So that's what he had that's to say awesome. about you. Yeah, he was, he was a great spirit. And with all our players, Brad, I, I always, when I got into coaching, I thought, that was one of the things because some of the coaching I had in my past wasn't the way I wanted to be treated or wasn't the way I wanted to be coached. So I wanted to be able to be, be there for our players as a friend, but also know that, look, here's the line. I'm going to work for you every day as long as you show up and work for me every day. And I'll do anything I can in my power to help you out, whether it's off the field, whether it's personal, whether it was girlfriends. Because, look, a lot of our guys, we were bringing in – uh, sometimes sight unseen, just because we didn't have the money. Yeah, we didn't have the money to, you know, we get back to those resources where you talk about other programs where they could bring guys in on official visit, visits and show them the facilities. Well, it was kind of twofold. At one, at one point, our facilities weren't the best, so you kind of had to pick and choose who you would bring in if that was the, the final thing that they needed. One, we had to find the funds, and then two – you had, to, you had to feel pretty good about what was going on. But relationships, and I thought, you know, talking to guys and, and, and finding out what made those guys tick, and Matty was one of those guys. I mean, we brought him in. I think he did come see the school, and he was, he was a big personality with a big arm. And I think the first year, like everybody that comes from junior college, is usually a little bit of a transition year. But, boy, his second year was, was awesome, and, and I enjoyed coaching him – you know, so much. He was he was always a guy that made you think, and that was what what I like. We had so many players at Nichols that 
uh, whether it was you know Chuck Hickman or Rondon Anderson or Bradley D'Antonio or Devin Rogers, Shine Jinky, they were awesome, awesome human beings and awesome players, and they always made you think. Yeah. And they made me as a better coach. They made me as a better player. But I took pride in in taking care of my guys, and I wanted to make sure that I did more than just be a baseball coach for those guys. Well, you are. Anytime I'm given the opportunity to speak to young ball players, one of the things that I tell them is that a leader is somebody that helps you to see yourself better than you are. And I can remember standing out on the left field line, dejected because I wasn't going to play that year. I had a I was took a medical red shirt because my back was bothering me a lot. And you told me that when I was healthy, I was not only going to be one of the best players out here, but one of the best players in the conference. And I then set a goal. I remember going home that night and writing in my journal, I was going to be an all-conference player. You put that in my head at a time when I was looking at players that were 6'1", 200 pounds, 6'2". I'm a, I'm a, I was one of the smaller guys on the team, Chuck Hickman and I. Correct. And so it was a little intimidating being out there and to have you see me better than I thought of myself was powerful for me because then I thought, well, I've got to live up to that. And Coach G is the guy that recruited me. And so I want to make him look good. I always felt a little connection because of that because BD Parker didn't recruit me. I was pre-BD. Right. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, so sure. I was one of like the only mm-hmm. leftovers. They say your players are your best recruiters and they're the ones who helped to get me to Nichols. And I remember them talking about you like, oh, G, is a, you, you're going to love G. He is, man, he's a player's coach, man. You're going to like him. And, and I did. So um, there's something to be said for the leadership and being so relatable to players. And I like what you said about, about learning from coaches what not to do. I call them anti-role models. Right. I, I'm that way, too. I've had managers in my professional career, and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to learn something from this guy, even though I don't like him, you know, he's going to teach me something. And then when I get to his position, I'm going to implement the opposite, <laughs> right? Right. You can learn whether it's, you know, and, and you do it as a young coach. Obviously, I was different, you know, Brad. I mean, when I started out, I was 20, 25 years old, uh, volunteers assistant at Nickel State. And, and that's that's all I wanted to do. And 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 I'm like you, I, I looked at the players as – Man, this is this is why you do it. I remember we had a conversation. It's it's funny because me and uh, Coach Mac, you know Jeff McCannon, we were talking about you the other day, and he said, you know, Bradley D's one of those guys that, boy, if 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 he could have stayed healthy, like he's a draft guy, and that's how I saw you, Brad. I mean, the the whole process of how we got you back to Nickel State was was through me talking to a couple players that were recruiting that knew you and also the coach knew you and gave me a recommendation and then I got on the horn and started doing research with scouts and people I knew in the area that could give me feedback mm. of of the player that you were I heard of the player that you were and believe me I was I was very excited because you fit very I mean you were you were perfect a perfect player in that ballpark that we played in you could mm. run you could hit doubles you could you could hit a home run you were a guy that was going to steal bases. I mean, you were made for Nickel State baseball. And and me and Coach Mack talked about that the other day about how a guy like you, I mean, I always saw you as a as a guy. If you didn't get drafted, I thought it was a no-brainer that you were going to be a senior sign because of your tools and because of the things that you did. And it's a it's a shame. Baseball is a cruel game sometimes. And I know for you, 
Because me and Cruz had actually talked about, you know, the year. I remember you riding on the bus a lot of times. You laying on the floor because your back was bothering you so mm-hmm. much. And I remember see- seeing you being distraught just because of how much you wanted to play. But physically, it wasn't allowing you that year. Mm-hmm. And I-, I thought a lot about how we can affect players and how personally we can affect players a lot of times the best teaching moment is when you're down or you're not having success instead of getting on somebody's butt and being the, being the negative guy. See what, what you were doing. You were doing everything in your power to be on that field, and it just wasn't going to happen that year. So I, I cherished every day I got to see you play Bradley D. I can see you in that white uniform or that gray uniform with number three, the helmet on. You getting ready to lead off the game, and I was always excited every time. <laughs> Just like Rondon Anderson was one of always uh, the guys I always enjoy watching play because I thought something exciting would happen. That was the same way I felt about you. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate you saying that. Coach Tibb was here on the podcast, and he said that he remembers everything his coaches ever said to him. I'm that way, too. I remember every conversation you and I ever had. Are you conscious of that when you interact with players, that they're probably going to remember a lot of what you say? I, I do, but I don't, you know, I think a lot, Brad, when, when I talk to a player, I'm, I'm trying to be truthful. You know, so if, if you speak from the heart and you're saying things that you really mean and you're not just trying to be old coach speak or you're just not trying to say stuff just to fluff it up, I don't think you have to worry about that. If you're really sincere and truthful and you care about people, I think the conversations that you have are personal and it's individual. I think when you speak from the heart, it, it, you shouldn't have to worry about what you're saying. That's a great point. Yeah, that's what makes you so relatable. There was never any fluff. There, were, there weren't a lot of cliches. I can't stand when people speak in cliches. It bothers me. Yesterday, I told my brother who lives in Prairieville that you were coming on the show, and he said, where does he coach? And I said, Ascension Catholic. He said, they just beat Dutchtown the other day. That's a 5A school. So how are things going where you're coaching now? You know, it's... it's uh it's good, and that game was really, really fun, Brad. You know, we got some history. I'm, I'm an Ascension Catholic alum, so that's where I graduated from in 1989. The, the coaching staff that I coach with, believe it or not, the head coach and the assistant coach, Todd Landry and Larry Dunn, we grew up in the same neighborhood. We played on the same team. I graduated one year uh, before they did. Now, both of these guys, listen to this coaching staff I have. It's unbelievable. I've been in some college programs, and, and – when I was the head coach at Loyola, had had great guys coaching for us. But the, the the resume of these three or four guys that work with us is unbelievable. One, Todd Landry played at Ascension Catholic, went to Southeastern out of high school, uh, left Southeastern, went to Lassen Junior College in California, and ended up at the University of Arizona where he was an all-Pac-10 player. Got drafted in, the I think, the 30th round by the Milwaukee Brewers. At that time, the Brewers had just – uh, moved to New Orleans. It was in New Orleans Zephyrs. So Todd went from single-A baseball sh- straight to triple-A just because they were trying a local boy. They were trying to draw a little bit of a crowd. They were playing at UNO. So he played triple-A baseball for the Brewers and the Mets for, I think, 10 years. And then now he's back home. Larry Dunn was our second baseman who played at Southeastern. He left as well. He wasn't happy with the situation because we're all colonels. So Southeastern's, I can understand why somebody would want to maybe leave Southeastern to go to somewhere else. <laughs> That's probably the primary rival, right, of Nichols? Right, of Nichols, yeah. is without a doubt. He, he ended up at Louisiana Tech and led the team and is still the current, I think, hit, hit by pitch 
leader. <laughs> so that tells you a little bit about him. He's yeah. just gritty and tough, and he was an infielder. And then the other guy that's helping us out is uh, a guy by the name of Jason Williams who played at LSU and won two national championships and played minor league baseball. He was also on an Olympic team that won a bronze medal. So I have those guys that work with hitters, work with infielders, and it's up to me to, to mess up the pitchers. But it's been really fun, Brad, just to you know to go back home. The type of kids that are on our club are just gritty, tough, you know, having been spalled, uh, not a whole lot of guys that have, uh, you know, have, have had stuff given to them. We really played well the other night. We've played well the whole year. We're 14 and 5 right now. We're a Division Four school, so we're a, we're a small A school. We probably have 500 kids in the entire school. What does that mean? Well, yeah. So there's 1A, 2A, 3A. Right. That's different classifications. So like Dutchtown is probably, is, I think it is the biggest high school in the state of Louisiana. It's probably 9th through 12th. It's probably over 2,600 students. Wow. Okay. So you take Dutchtown High School, and then you take Ascension Catholic, which their senior class has as many students in their senior class as we do in our entire school. But on a given day when you play baseball, it doesn't matter. It's not like football. It's not about power and speed. It's about uh, in the, can the guy on the bump, can he pitch? Can you play defense? And can you you know, do enough things offensively? And, and we, we have. I think we've played out of our 18 games this year, 19 games, we've played every team has either been 5A or 4A. We're number one in our division right now. Uh, we're at the halfway point, and it's been absolutely fun. It's mm-hmm. been absolutely fun to have crews in the dugout. It's fun to be back coaching uh, kids, friends that I went to school with or graduated with, or maybe that were in the neighborhood when I grew up. So it's really been a unique time. I never, ever thought in my life that I was going to go back in that direction and maybe get to go back to your alma mater and, and coach, but it's really been the right place at the right, t- right time. It's been absolutely a ball. These kids play hard. They, they, they fight. They don't believe, you know, that they're ever out of it. And the bigger the opponent, the better we are. Do you have some college prospects? We do. We do. It's, it's funny. We have uh, our little, uh, well, I shouldn't say little, our shortstop uh, signed with Baton Rouge Community College. So he's going to play junior college baseball. Our quarterback, who's a sophomore, who's also our third baseman, and he's probably one of our better arms. He's an upper 80 guy with a breaking ball, and he's a sophomore. He's a guy that's definitely in the future is going to be a, a college baseball player. Uh, he may even be able to do it in two sports because he's a really good quarterback. He spins it really nice. We have a freshman who his father played at University of Monroe as a safety and as a baseball player and then didn't want to play f- football anymore, so he transferred to USL back then. It wasn't ULL. It was USL. So he played for Tony Robichaux, and he was an outfielder, and he was a really talented player. Could hit the ball pretty far, could run, could throw. And his son is a freshman, and he's six foot four, and he's 205 pounds. He plays for us. Wow. He played last year as an eighth grader. So we have three or four guys – that have an ability, whether they're going to play junior college or four-year baseball, will have a chance here in a few years to be college baseball players. What a great situation for them, knowing how well-connected their coach is. You know, it's funny. You talk about that all the time. When we talk about that, you know, back in the day, you always knew everything about your coach. Like, you, you, you had your, your high school coach on, and you guys had a great conversation about, you know, your days there and, and former players. And you, I'm sure – you, you, you knew everything about your coach's background, what he did. This day and age, it's almost like some guys don't – they don't know. Like when I played in high school, my high school coach was Wade Seminole, who played at Nichols, who coached at Nichols, 
who ran a, an outstanding Legion team during the summer. At the time, it was it was All-Star Ford or Lusto Ford, and those guys would always win the American Legion State Championship. They would go to regionals, play in the Mid-South Regional, and in two or three years, they actually went to the World American Legion World Series. I think they won the Connie Mack World Series one year as well, and it was great players, Greg Patterson, Mr. Sheets, who played shortstop for a few teams in the major leagues. He always had great players. It seems like players nowadays, just because of the, the way we play baseball, it's no longer Legion baseball, it's travel baseball, showcase baseball. It's almost like they don't, they don't have kind of the background of, man, my, my coach coached in college or he is connected. Now, they do know now because I'm from there, and I think with their parents and other people and the people on the staff, they understand. So it's always a good thing, obviously, when you can guide guys and say, look, I was, I was there. I, I, I know what you need to do. I know if you're serious about this because, you know, when you left from high school and you went to college, all of a sudden it's a job now. To me, high school was always a great experience. I love my high school career. I was the first one there. For practice, I was the last one to leave. We couldn't play enough games. And then you get into college, and all of a sudden now there's so much more that's involved because, one, they're paying you if you're fortunate enough to have a scholarship. But, two, the hours are longer. People are better. There's more more players there. There's a grind. So you really got to love it. You really got to want it because that separates. If, if you're not 100% in, then you're going to get chewed up. So a lot of my, my talks with my players are not so much about what it takes to get there is that are you really committed enough to to go play college baseball? Because when you get there, all the glamour and the glitz that you think is there, it's a job. And every year, guys come in and they're trying to take your spot. Coaches are always trying to get better. You know, it's 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 a grind. So it's fun to talk to them about, you know, what's what's ahead if they have that. And even talk to some guys that maybe think that they don't have a chance, that there's other opportunities out there besides maybe go and play at a nickel state. Uh, there's a Loyola in New Orleans or there's a junior college in Texas or Louisiana or wherever. There's so many different levels of baseball. And, you know, coaching at Loyola, I think, opened up my eyes as well. That small-time college baseball is awesome as well. Some of the places that we played and, and I, I, some of those places, Brad, I've never heard of some of those schools before, but it was amazing how beautiful the campuses were or if you really dived into – just the, the academic uh, status of those schools and the different degrees and different programs, different opportunities they, they offered. And baseball is baseball. The, the, the relationships that you make that down the road that you didn't think maybe made a difference, all of a sudden that connection or that one person that you were teammates with all of a sudden opens up doors for the rest of your life or opens up a door to a wife or a girlfriend or a different path. So I think – Talking to my guys about uh, just the experiences, it's fun, and, and I'm at a point in my life where it's never really been about me, but it's, it's, fun, it's fun to be able to help the youth and see the young guys. Because unlike college, where you're dealing with guys that are older and, and a little more mature and maybe have a little more focus on what they want to do, the high school kids, it's amazing. It's the little things that makes such a difference. You know, the light goes off or maybe one or two things that you, you can tell those guys or really make a difference in how they see the game or how they see the world or how they, how they see themselves. So high school, the high school part has really been fun, Brad. It's been a different, different part. 
So was Loyola University your first head coaching job? It was, you know, because a little bit about my career. See, I was at Nickel State from 1996 to 2005. Katrina hit. B.D. Parker resigned, decided that, you know, he, he had had enough. So uh, 2006, I thought it was time for a change, and we went in a different direction. I was fortunate enough to, to, to uh, be hired at uh, University of New Orleans with Tom Walter, and that's when Katrina hit. That was a different circumstance in itself just with, you know, basically the whole fall. I didn't go with them in the fall because by the time uh, the job opened up and uh, they hired, they were already in Las Cruces, New Mexico, because obviously everything in New Orleans was was shut down. So their fall uh, was at New Mexico State, and it was basically just to be able to have those guys have some sense of normalcy and go to school, and they did practice baseball. And then when we came back, we were kind of bouncing around all over the place. So that that year was a story by itself. I mean, that was you could you could you could talk about that for hours and hours. Just everything that we experienced, everything that we went through that year. And then Loyola, New Orleans. Uh, I spent the next seven years there as the head coach. So that was my fo- first head coaching opportunity. Is that something you always wanted to do? At first, uh, never really thought about being a head coach, Brad. I really never thought about being a coach when I when I first got into this thing. I mean, I if believe it or not, I I thought about broadcast journalism, you know, because at that time talking about sports, ESPN and all that other stuff that seemed like fun. I didn't I didn't really at, at that point I was trying to play baseball. I didn't know which way I wanted to go. Umpired a few games, you know, when you play junior college baseball, the guys if you're not pitching that day, sometimes you got to you got to. Umpire, yeah, yeah, you got umpire inter squad games, and then there's also you hit fungos and all that stuff. Well, Corky Palmer, who was my head coach at Meridian Community College, uh, one day told me he was like, "Geez, like man, you really you swing a nice fungo." He said, "You know, you you do a good job on the bases." He said, "You're gonna make a hell of a coach one day." I was like, "A coach, man, I don't want to do that. I see what you guys do. I don't want to <laughs> be a coach." So sure enough, you know, when I left there. I finished playing at Meridian when you're five foot eight and you're a right-handed pitcher and you throw 84, 85 with a ball that doesn't move a whole lot and <laughs> a little bit of a breaking ball. You, know, you need to find another career. So at that point, I uh, I knew I was done playing baseball. Got a phone call from some guys at Nichols that I knew said, "Hey, you need to uh, go go meet Coach Knight. He's looking for a student assistant. He's looking. He always looks for help. If you come to school here, this would be a good place for you to kind of." you know, get your degree, and then you could coach. So ended up meeting with him and uh, started in 1995 in the fall, 1996, and here we are today. <laughs> so you were excited to get that first head coaching job? Exc- oh, excited beyond belief, and it paid absolutely nothing, but it was mm-hmm. it was fun. I mean, just, you know, wanting to be a, a, a college baseball coach and having an opportunity to, to coach at a place, you know, like Nichols, who at that time, man, those guys had – some success. I mean, 89, they were in the regional at, at Starkville. 92, they were in the regional. Nichols was always a school that was winning 44, 45 games. Had a couple friends that were from from, from Donaldsonville that, that played. Gary Weber, Gary Regeur were really good players at Nichols. So I knew a lot about Nichols. I knew a lot about, about baseball. So I thought it was a, a great opportunity. I mean, how, how lucky am I, man? I get to you know, go to LSU, go to Alex Box, go to Tulane, uh, take a trip out to, to Baylor and, and, you know, see the best of the best 
and have a chance to coach, you know, amateur athletes at the highest level. So, yes, very excited. Mm. It's crazy that somebody can mention to you a career and then the whole trajectory of your life has changed. I was the same way my senior year of high school. I had a teacher say, if you don't do some kind of business or sales, and I had never thought, what the hell am I going to do with my life? I thought I was going to be a baseball player. It's interesting. It, it uh, crosses your mind for the first time, and, and then your life just takes on a whole different direction. So you had planned to do broadcast journalism. You're young still. I mean, do you ever think you want to do that sometime? I'll tell you what, you know, I've been fortunate like today. You know, so, so we get in contact, and I'm I'm here doing an interview with you. I've been fortunate through my career to have friends that have been. You know, it's not major TV, or it's not, but you know, I've done some shows. I've I've done some radio gigs. I really enjoy that that part, Brad. I don't. I I love. You know, I love to talk. I must get that from my mom, <laughs> and I love good conversation about. You know, obviously sports. I would think so. I, I think that would be fun if there there would be some opportunities down the road where you could be a color guy or you think about podcasts. There's so many shows now that are live streamed. Guys like out of Baton Rouge, you know, 104.5. You listen to all those different guys, whether it was Ryan Terrio or whoever, Matt Moscona. I think that would be fun to be able to sit down and talk about sports and what's going on in the world, and especially when you can you can have your own opinion about you know, what's going on. Every little comment like that ever made to me, I remember. I was in fifth grade. Miss Jean Bear said we were out at recess and we were jumping over this, this rope that, that two people were holding and it was like limbo, but you were trying to see how high you could jump over this rope as two people held it higher and higher. And I remember her saying, he is so light on his feet. If he doesn't run track in high school, and sure enough, when I got to eighth grade, I was like, I've got to run track because she put that in my head. I remember you telling me in the dugout one day that I was going to be CEO someday. You probably don't remember that, but well, I sure do. And I was on that track and I was going to be a CEO. Never probably would have considered it if Coach G hadn't said it. <laughs> well, you always had that. You always had the, the it factor about you, Bradley. You were no. always together, you know, because you run through different personalities. You were always that guy that seemed to have it together. Like there was never a day where I ever saw you with a face of panic or like you weren't in control. I mean, you were <laughs> always even keel. Nothing surprised you, whether it was good or bad. You always had that, I'm in charge, I'm in control, and I'm going to control the situation. So naturally, I always thought of you as a leader and a guy that would lead, you know, whether it was a, a team or a business or an organization. You just always had that presence about you. My wife is that way, too. I don't know if you've gotten that from your brief interaction with her, but she is very poised. Our daughter this morning was kind of choking on some saliva, hopped out of bed, boom, looked at me, called the doctor. I mean, it was like, wow, she doesn't panic at all. So it's well, interesting a, you say that. That's an awesome trait. Do you, did you realize how rampant steroid usage was when I played? You know, I, I think we had players that made gains, so it's one of those where... <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Yeah, we, we had some guys that, uh, you know, in a short period of time, things would change. So we really didn't have, once again, you go back to resources, testing. And then, you know, back in the day, you know, it's the thing with Bonds and Clements and, and all those guys. Um, not that it was, it was uh, morally correct, I should say, but it wasn't against the rules back then. You know, now NCA was obviously uh, supplements and what you were taking. But 
we you always have um you know you have you have some thoughts like man this is uh that that sure is a different body or you know boy he sure has picked up a whole lot of miles an hour and really hadn't been working you know in, in in front of you so sometimes you question and then you know that was also back to i remember you know you had lsu with the gorilla ball and and i worked some camps at lsu during that time and i know creatine was big supplements were big but the thing that was crazy brad and it's not even on the on the well the professional level you you understand that and and even when i was in junior college baseball look my roommate was was taking steroids there's no doubt he was taking shots between his toes and you're talking about in 1990 at a junior college in mississippi where he was trying because he had an opportunity he was drafted out of high school wasn't drafted high enough didn't really want to be at school the only reason why he went to went to junior college was he wanted to get that year in make a jump show him that whatever they were looking for whether it was you know holding velocity or increasing velocity that he could do it, and he was going to sign for a cheeseburger. Hmm. Um, I remember, you know, a lot of times it, he would he would have uh, access to a DMSO. You remember that they would use that on horses where it was a liquid, and you would you would take a liquid with a little swab, and you would rub it like on his arm. That would help him loosen up. It would create the it would help the muscle fibers perform. So there was times when. Um, you know, we would take and, and rub that on. He was getting that stuff from a from a veterinarian. He wasn't even getting it from a doctor. It was it was it was horse drugs. I mean, wow. basically what it was. And but I know guys that were using it because it helped performance. So you can only imagine at places where there's a lot of resources. And kind of getting back to LSU, I remember there were guys that were were going to LSU, and it's kind of like the Barry Bonds thing. You know, where all of a sudden the head starts to grow and the hat sizes change, and you know that's one of the indicators. There was a lot of guys during that time during Gorilla Ball, and believe me, we saw it up up front and personal because we played those guys a lot. And it was a, you remember the old box guys, man? That's different than the new box. They were not only they were on top of you, but that place was a launching pad, and they had some big men that hit the ball really hard, really far. Those bats at that time were minus fives, which means like thirty three inches, twenty eight ounces. Correct. So those guys were creating some bat speed. And balls were leaving, and and you could see, like guys that were going, and I shouldn't just say LSU, just at that time in college baseball, guys' bodies would would change dramatically in a short amount of time. So, mm-hmm. I n- I never had proof, but you know you you do have suspicion at that time. I guess you know that was that was part of the culture. I can remember taking a piss at the urinal. <laughs> we were we were on a road trip one time. And one of our guys was next to me. And, you know, there's an unwritten rule. It's sort of bro code where when you're at the urinal, you just look at the wall, right? Well, when somebody's pissing pink on the side of you, you can't help but catch out of your peripheral vision some serious something going on. And I looked, I looked at him, I backed up, and I'm like, dude, what is that? And he was like, oh, this is the masking stuff that we take. You can get it at Walmart. I'm like, whoa, dude. Yeah, it was crazy. I remember, you know, in 90... 1998, we we got hot and like won our last 13 conference games and made it to the conference tournament as the, the four seed. Ended up winning the whole thing. That's when Northwestern State actually um, they were number one. They had a coach that left Dave Van Horn, who left Northwestern in the middle of the year to take the Nebraska job. So they brought in John Cohen, 
And those guys were so confident that they were going to win and go to a regional that they bust every day from Natchitoches to Shreveport because the tournament was in Shreveport. It was at the Giants. It was the old Double A Park uh, fairgrounds in Shreveport. So they were saving the money. Well, they they ended up losing the first game. They came through the losers bracket. We beat them three to two in the championship game. Won the whole thing. Went home. So we play in Baton Rouge. And I don't know if you remember or not, they would drug test all the players after a game. Like, basically, you would play an NCAA regional game. We played LSU that night late because that was back in the day when it was only 48 teams. It wasn't 64. And you had eight teams at a regional. And they would take – it was like the lottery. They would pull names out of the hat. And the moment the game was over with, NCAA compliance would come up to you. And they would grab – they would say, hey, I need Bradley D'Antonio. I need – Rondon Anderson, I need Chuck Hickman. They got to go directly to the the P-10. So they would test. And you know how tough it is after playing a ball game in South Louisiana with the humidity. <laughs> if you don't have some fluids in you, it's, you're going to be a while. Well, I remember Fred Knox, who was from Arkansas, played at Central Arizona. The game ended. It was late because it was one of those games back in Gorilla Ball. I think the final score was like 18-10. to 10. I mean, this was a first opening night. At LSU. This was the year that they broke out the gold jerseys as well. When they they won the back-to-back and all of a sudden they had the gold, the gold jerseys. Doug Thompson pitched that day and the, the, the place was crazy. Well, poor poor Fred Knox, he, he can't pee. So they're not letting you leave until you produce. So he's drinking everything he can. I remember we get back to the hotel. They leave those guys behind. One of the other coaches stayed with them. Or maybe it was a trainer, Jerry Blackwell, who stayed with him. Oh, Jerry Black. And poor Fred, it was like three o'clock before he could he could go. So this poor guy has played in a game that started at eight, stayed there the whole time, and then we have to turn around the next morning and play Harvard at eight o'clock in the morning. So he was on a couple hours sleep. And granted, none of the guys, I don't remember anybody at the regional testing, but what a story, huh? I mean, you poor guys played nine innings. Playing, he played left field. He was dehydrated. They kept him all night. He got about three hours sleep and had to get up the next morning and play Harvard at eight o'clock in the morning. It was, it was crazy. It's almost unfair. Mm. You mentioned a guy that I want to shout out, Jerry Blackwell. We talked about I had a a back problem early in my career. Jerry Blackwell saved me. That dude is the man. Jerry Blackwell saved a lot of guys. He saved a lot of coaches. He saved because none of us, we couldn't afford to go to the doctor back then either, Brad. So he was also our doctor if we had a cold or we had a sickness. He's still rolling along. Jerry Blackwell is still in Thibodeau at Thibodeau High School, and he's the head athletic trainer for uh, Lafouche Parish, so all of Lafouche schools. He's, he's the guy that directs everything, and he does a great job, man. That's Good a great for him. friend. I have a Dave Van Horn story. My senior year in the fall, our last period of, of school was athletics, and we had baseball, and we would go out and hit off the tees or whatever. And I was walking with my best friend, Chase Lambin, down the athletics hall to the locker room to get changed, and there was a, a whiteboard that was sitting on a chair outside our locker room, and it said, Chase and Brad, the Nebraska coach is here to see you. And so we go out to the field, and and he introduced himself, Dave Van Horn, and, and he said, I want to see you guys throw, and then you can hit in the cage or just carry on with whatever you were going to do. So I'm standing probably 60 feet from Chase, and Van Horn, Coach Van Horn is standing next to Chase on the, the foul line. So I'm in the outfield. We're just playing catch. And I hear Van Horn say to Chase, he's got a good body. 
and I, I thought he was, he was talking about me. And Chase was, Chase thought he was going to be able to go anywhere in the country. He was very cocky. <laughs> he goes, oh, Brad? Oh, yeah. He gets laid like carpet. <laughs> and I go, dude, what? And so he got a scholarship offer. I did uh, not. That's <laughs> awesome. Yep. That's an awesome story. Uh, so I looked Jeez, him up. Man. This was probably like a month ago. I don't know why his name popped in my head. I looked at his Wikipedia page. $975,000 a year. Really? Can you believe that? I didn't know there was that much money in baseball. Look, and there's some, and I think that's just probably what the school pays him, because I guarantee you their they're fundraising club, they're, they're chipping in. I guarantee he makes over $1.2, probably $2 million wow. with the total, total package. College baseball is really, in the last 10, 15 years, has really taken off, Brad. That's why those guys are at schools like Arkansas and LSU – they're not going anywhere. Mm. I mean, Maneri, I think a couple of years ago when he flirted with the Texas job and then LSU re-upped him, I'm pretty sure he's he's well over a million in just base, base salary. You mentioned Maneri. LSU's struggling this year. You think he's on the hot seat? Well, that's Baton Rouge and LSU, so you know how that is. If It doesn't matter if you're the girls' soccer coach. If you're not, if you're not winning games, you're always on the hot seat. And I think – you know, them with the start that they're they're out to. And look, it's Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt, I mean, how many times are you going to face Rocker and Lighter? Those guys are probably going to be the first two or three picks in the draft. And and they've, they've lost games here the last couple of days pretty handily. I mean, it hadn't even been a ball game. I think 13-1. to 1. Last night was 11-2 to 2 or something like that. Today's a huge game for those guys. I think there was always pressure. Plus, LSU hadn't won a national championship since, I think it's been, what, 2009? That was Coach Maneri's first year, and they haven't. Now, they, they were back against Florida and lost lost to Florida in the two-out-of-three series, but LSU doesn't lose national championship games. So, you know, he's he's well-established in his life and his career. So, uh, for him, I don't I – don't, it's probably the pressure that he puts on himself, and if something would happen, I think he's probably at the point in his life where if it does, it does, but I'm going to do it my way. And if that's not good enough, then – We'll move on. So, but yeah, I definitely think there's there's pressure in Baton Rouge. Speaking of Vanderbilt, I had a former Vanderbilt player on the podcast. I asked him what was the maybe the most fans he ever played in front of, and he said the biggest crowd was LSU. The loudest was Arkansas. I've heard that. Well, you remember we went to was it Ole Miss? You were on that team where the Ole Miss crowd, especially they were one of the first ones that had the students in the outfield that really kind of got after you. I mean, Mississippi yeah. State's always had those guys as well but i remember some of the stories because we had a our right fielder you remember jason jason wilkerson big, big old boy yeah and then we had a center fielder or what was it larpenter larpenter and then you were playing left and i remember wilk wilkie came in he was like coach they had the greatest line ever i was like what was that he goes they wanted to know if i ate larpenter <laughs> <laughs> yeah old miss hecklers were outstanding probably the best that we had i, I love being heckled I mean, it told me that I was big, to, like I had made it to the big time. That's I mean, right. you're not going to get hecklers at at a, a junior college. And if, and if they're heckling you, that means you're a pretty good player as yeah. well because they and don't they, pick on uh, the guys that aren't. Yes, and when you strike out, they give you shit. But when you get a hit or you steal a base, hey, good job, Brad. Yes. You'll hear you'll hear them whisper, and it's it's outstanding. So are you required to teach since you're at a high school now? I do. You know, unless you're in Louisiana, unless you're the athletic director – then you're not required to teach classes. So if you're a full-time 
high school teacher and you're a head coach in any sport, you're required to have four classes. So right now I'm teaching American history and journeys to careers, which is a, a class which I really enjoy, Brad. You know, the history history part, uh, it's 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 a great class because, you know, obviously they're learning about American history and some of our uh, students, you know, it's not so much the, the history pre-1900 or 1920s. It's the modern stuff. It's 9-11 or it's, uh, you know, Afghanistan. Wait, which these kids weren't born right, when right, 9-11. Weren't born. So a lot of that stuff, you know, we're getting into now and, and talking to those guys and giving them background and them learning about that uh, is awesome and important. But the other class I really enjoy is our journeys to careers. And what it is is for juniors and seniors kind of helping them understand maybe some opportunities, what, you know, what path they can take, whether it's, you know, different types of colleges, whether it's technical or uh, a four-year school, or if they're going to a junior college, opportunities, you know, as far as a career, which you talked about, you know, someone telling you maybe, hey, you should think about this career. So kind of just giving them an option of everything that's out there. But it's also... And, and you think about this, the other day in one of our classes, we talked about how to change a flat tire, you know, mm -hmm. how to jumpstart a battery, how to, how to write a, a letter uh, with an envelope, how to address it properly. You know, things that we take for granted that this generation didn't have to do. Remember when we were in school, especially me, it was typewriting. You know, you had to learn how to write on a typewriter. And now, you know, those things with technology and phones, uh, some of those things have been erased. So... It's a fun class because we have, a, we have uh, kids in there that are deciding whether or not they're going to work for mom and dad or they're going into the oil field or they're going to work at a plant or others that want to be nurses or going to four-year school. So it's a fun class because it's really uh, it's an open topic and we, we discuss a ton of things and you get to see their personality and, and some of the questions. So it's a fun class. I enjoy my four classes. I took keyboarding my senior year of high school, and I am so glad I did. You know, this is pre-internet. Right. Once the internet came around to be able to teach, I worked in software eventually, and just keeping up on our CRM, which is a customer, relation, customer relationship manager where you take your notes. Like, I met the IT director, G. Gassard, and this is what we talked about, and to be able to put all those notes quickly into the system, and, and you're going to be, you're going to have your quarterly reviews with your boss and the VP, and they're going to want to know things, and so how efficiently, how, how quickly you can qualify deals and take your notes that keyboarding class, if I hadn't taken that, I would have been hunting and pecking on the, on the computer. I wouldn't have had any kind of success because you had to be fast. Taking, uh, talking about changing a tire. I didn't learn to change a tire until I was about 27 years old. And it just so happened I was seeing this girl who was living in Louisiana. I was in Houston at this time. And she flew in to see me. And I went to pick her up from the airport. And I got a flat tire I had just learned like the week before. Can you imagine if I didn't know how to change a flat tire? And she was in my car. So we had pulled over on, on the side of I-45. Very dangerous to where I almost got hit. And you hear about people getting hit all the time. Right. So I decided after that, I was never going to change a tire again. It's just, to me, it's not worth it to, to feel that manliness that you feel changing a tire. I'm just going to call AAA. Right. I don't do it anymore. And, and that's, you know, if, if I got a flat tire with you guys in my car today, I mean, you'd probably help me. We'd do it. But do it if I'm by myself, I'm just going to sit there and watch him. And I, I feel bad. <laughs> but yeah. That's the same reaction as some of my students, like especially the, the females, the girls in my class. But one of our students, Sadie, I asked her the other day, I said, so what happens, Sadie, 
when you have a flat tire, what are you going to do? I'm just going to call my dad. Yeah. My dad's going to come fix it. So that's that's the solution. You know, call the dad because they have cell phones, they have everything else, so you have AAA. But back in the day, now we didn't start dating at this time, but my wife, that's how I met my wife. She was, I was running, it was during baseball practice, it was my senior year in high school, and we were running past said some tennis courts and a basketball gym, and she's driving in the parking lot really fast. <laughs> and uh, she's got to drop something off, and then she's got to get back to school for dance team practice. Well, she comes, she drives around the parking lot and kind of hits the curb and, and just blows the tire out. So she stops the car in the middle of the road, jumps out. She's like, hey, y'all know how to fix a tire? And I was like, yeah. I said, you I'm guessing you don't. She was like, no, and I need to be at practice. So I'm just going to leave the car here. How about you guys go ahead and uh, fix it and just bring it to school when you're done? So sure enough, me and my buddy, we opened up the trunk, changed the tire, did everything. And her dad, who's now my father-in-law, is a big-time golfer. So he had a ton of golf clubs behind his car. So me and my other buddy, who's also he's the head football coach at Episcopal High School in Baton Rouge, he played college baseball at UAB. We, we kind of rummaged through the clubs. He had some putters. He had nine iron. He had a ton of, a ton of balls. So uh, we kind of rummaged, rummaged through the, uh, the trunk and then put everything back and uh, fixed the car, dropped it off. And then, you know, five years later, we ended up dating. <laughs> so it's crazy. That's awesome. That was our, that was our first uh, introduction to, uh, to one another. That reminds me of the movie Back to the Future. Remember he gets hit with the car and That's he meets right. Lorraine? That's right. That's he's funny. wearing Calvin Klein yeah. underwear, so she thinks his name is Calvin. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great show. <laughs> yeah, the, the second one is interesting because they they spend a lot of time, I think, in the year 2020. Is that right? right? I think so. And so you can see all the predictions they made about what things were going to be like, and none of that came true, no. and they didn't come close to predicting the internet. I was reading something the other day about what the biggest change is in our era, and of course it'd probably be the internet, but... What goes to show that you can't predict what's coming next is that what really made all the difference was search. Nobody predicted that search would be such a big deal. Wow. But Google, the fact that we have all the information in the world in our pockets at all times, that's the biggest change of our era probably. Correct. Yeah, there's no doubt. It's, it's amazing because my time is encyclopedias. You know, if you, had to, <laughs> yeah. you needed something, you needed an encyclopedia or a dictionary. That's how, you, that's how you found out information. But you're right. You can Google anything, and that's what the kids say nowadays. You know, if they have a question or if they don't know how to do something or they need an answer, just Google it. Yeah, and how many times do you get asked a Googleable question? Or I used to make this mistake five or six years ago. Maybe hope I'd like to think it was seven or eight or ten or twelve years ago, but I end up asking a Googleable question myself, and it's just because I I hadn't made the switch in my head yet that I can Google things. Right. But you'll get called out for that. You know, in the software world, people call you an idiot. You know, what do you do? Don't ask me that. You can Google that. Google it. Yeah, my bad. <laughs> Have you ever been thrown out of a game? Yes. Really? Yes. A couple times. I'll tell you a funny story. It was actually at Nichols. We were playing uh, University of Texas San Antonio. The guy who was umpiring the game was actually a really good friend of my dad's. My dad actually, uh, they were friends, and he also, uh, my dad was a teacher his first year out of college and ironically taught at Ascension Catholic. And this umpire was one of his students and also one of his friends. So it was a typical Ray Didier kind of game. You know, winds blowing in, not a whole lot of offense. The guy that we had on the mound was filling it up, Brad. It was, it was unbelievable. It was, it was both teams. I think 
one team had a one hitter, one team had a no hitter. Well, all of a sudden, in about the sixth inning, the zone changed. It went from being really big to being really small. Don't you hate that shit? Do hate it. Just be, just be the same. I mean, it's hard enough to all hit. We ask you know, is when consistency, you, Blue. That's right. <laughs> that's right. It's hard enough to hit when you, when you know what a strike is, and then when you don't. So the game kind of, uh, you know, the zone started to shrink. All of a sudden, now my guy who just throws strikes, um, you know, walks two guys, and of course. I've got some commentary from the dugout because I'm mad that all of a sudden we can't throw a strike. And now the game, it was a seven-inning ball game because back then you'd play a doubleheader on Saturday. We wasn't playing on Friday yet because back to resources again. You didn't have a whole lot. You couldn't, couldn't afford to spend three nights in a hotel. So the zone shrinks. So first, first fastball is down the hop, and he balls it. So I'm hollering at our, our catcher. I think it was Scotty Wern at the time. Where was it? So if you know baseball, if the catcher grabs his mask, that means it's a strike. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I'm in the outfield <laughs> thinking so usually, about it. <laughs> usually when pitching coaches, coaches holler at catchers and they want to know where it's at, if he grabs the mask, that means he missed it. It's a strike. So I start chirping. And we throw another pitch, and it's in the same spot, and it's ball two. And this time the umpire looks in the dugout and says ball two. Ooh. So my, my talking points become louder and greater. And not only am I talking to him, but also our head coach, B.D. Parker, is now chiming in as well. So the next pitch, it's a 3-0, it's a 3-0 pitch. And, of course, we groove it down the middle, and they turn the guy loose, and he hits a three-run jack. So now we're down three to nothing. And at that point, soon as the guy hit it out, we explode out the dugout. So I remember before the runner – the guy that hit the home run, hit the plate. We were, I was in uh, the batter's box voicing my displeasure to the home plate umpire. So we went round and round. Uh, at one point, one of the other umpires cut me off to try to get me out of there. And I had said one or two other words where he, he, throw, he dumps me. Mm. And then he also dumps our other assistant, which is Jeff McCannon, because he's, he's as fired up as I am because, you know, now we went from winning a game and losing a game. Well, all this stuff is going on, and the guy that we're talking about is also, you know, he's, he's, he's a friend, and he's, 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 my, he's one of my dad's friends. So they throw us out the game, and as they throw us out the game, you know, they're escorting us to the locker room. Well, BD is arguing with um, the umpire. He says, look, if you throw him out the game, he goes, you're going to throw me out the game. He goes, one, he goes, that guy calls every pitch that we throw. He goes, I don't know how to call pitches. And I don't know the signs. So he goes, how are you going to write this up when there's no coaches left? Because he, he says, you're throwing me out. And he says, well, what do you want me to do, BD? He goes, you need to get G back in the game. So the only time in my life, Brad, and I've been throwing out a few ball games, that they sent, they sent another assistant into the locker room and said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but you're back in. So I actually <laughs> was thrown out of a game and then actually brought back into the game. I don't think you can actually do that. But, I, but basically he said, yeah. He goes, go tell G he's back in. He's okay. So from that point on, I knew I was pretty good. So that guy caught, caught it pretty good for the rest of the game. We ended up losing. And uh, a couple of days later, I met up with the umpire, and he told me, he said, well, you, you should have gave me a little, you know, a pass. He said, I didn't feel good that day. Oh, I was poor. like, well, I didn't feel good that day, neither watching you call balls and strikes. <laughs> but, yeah, so I was thrown out of a ball game, Brad, and let back in. So, 
Unreal. So I, I never coached anything until I was, I had just graduated from college. I moved back to Houston and the guy coaching the summer Cy Falls varsity baseball team needed help. So I went and coached and he, he had to work late one night or something. So I was by myself. And so that was my only head coaching experience. And that game we lost. And I remember that night I couldn't sleep. And I could not believe the difference in a loss when you're playing one, but even assistant coach versus head coach. And this summer league, doesn't it doesn't mean that much. I took it so hard. Did you notice a difference between being an assistant coach when you lost and being a head coach when you lost? No, it's, there's definitely a, di- a difference. You know, when you're an assistant it's it's about suggestions. You make suggestions, and ultimately, head coaches make the make decisions. That was one of the first things I learned from uh, Coach Knight. He told me that because we would always have, you know, talks. We'd have our meetings before we would go in the weekend of a ball game, and and he would kind of open up the floor where he would let you talk about. You know, at that point in time, I was coaching catchers, helping out with pitchers, and the guy that he was playing, I didn't agree with. I always thought it was the other guy, and and. I remember one night we were talking and it was late. And I was like, Coach, why do you keep asking me my opinion if you never <laughs> listen to what I'm telling you? And he was like, gee, I'm going to tell you real quick, son. He said, coaches make, de- make, make decisions, assistants make suggestions. He mm. said, so until you sit in this seat, he goes, you can, you can suggest all you want. He said, but if, he said, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down my way. So like that was that. one of them. But, yeah, there is a difference, Brad. I, I remember, you know, as an assistant, you were more – you were more just task oriented, you know. Like I was, I was the pitching guy and the recruiting guy for a long time. So my focus, even though, you know, I cared about the offense and I cared about position play. I mean, I was in my little hole where I was worried about making sure guys had their preparation leading up to a start. That we did everything we could mentally and physically, and we prepared those guys that we that everything. So you thought more about just the individual day task as a head coach. There's so much more. I mean, sitting in that seat now, you know, I feel stupid sometimes mm-hmm. because like all assistants, you know, not the the wins and losses, not that it doesn't mean more. Your focus is just on performance and players and whatever other things you have that day. As a head coach, you're worrying about, you know, individuals. You're worrying about game plans. You're worrying about your other coaches. You're worrying about things that happen outside the program, whether it's fundraising or if there's a problem at school or if Brad – you know, had a bad day and his girlfriend told him something he didn't like, the, the mental state of, you know, what that player was going to be. And then personally, I think you just – you take it more personal as a head coach, the wins and losses. I know there's a lot of times I go back home after a win or a loss where, like, you just – you replay the game. The mind doesn't shut off. What if I did this or what if we did this? Or maybe if I told Jimmy, you know, we need to do it this way, the outcome would be different. You can You can replay stuff all the time so as a head coach it is and and i i find it harder like i don't sleep a whole lot during baseball season just because your mind's always thinking about not only the game and the opponent and your team but there's so many things outside of you know what you have to do with just the baseball team to make sure that umpires are showing up or the gate or the concession stand or travel uniform it it seems like it just it's my mind doesn't shut down so Mm. there is a big difference between being a head coach and and an assistant coach. What year did you start to have trouble with your health? 
Officially, I was diagnosed with uh, colon cancer when I was 43 years old. So it was 2014. And look, leading up, I was at Loyola during that time. And I started, it started feeling tired. You know, I, it's probably 25 years that I'd been to a doctor before I went, Brad, to, to, to be diagnosed. Because I knew something was wrong. I had, I had left Loyola. I just felt drained. And then came back to Nichols worked for Coach Tibb as the director of baseball operations. And it was more of a year where, um, you know, we talked about just kind of pulling back a little bit. I still wanted to be involved, but yet I didn't want to do the daily grind. It just I just felt like I had, I was burnt out. I, I was recruiting, um, field maintenance, everything that went involved, the academic side, the meetings. I just, I'd kind of had enough and, and I just needed to, I needed to reset the battery. So even that year at Nichols, I just, I wasn't myself. Like, I could feel, you know, energy, uh, sleeping more. And then if you, as I look back now, you know, because back then I never thought I had cancer. I never thought, you know, any of that stuff was, was a possibility. But, but going back and knowing everything that I know now, I had some symptoms. And, and I just didn't, I just denied. I was like, this, you know, can't be, it can't be me. I can't, I can't have it. Nothing's wrong with me. So, ironically, I had been offered the job we went to Tyler Texas so I had a I had a buddy that was the head coach up there and I was going to go work for him and it was still some transition uh you know Courtney and Cruz were were, were going to stay behind and then I was going to go to Tyler and kind of stay there for a year and kind of go back and forth you know from home so it was it was it was going to be a deal where I was away and before I went I accepted the job over the summer and then around July Stomach, I had stomach issues where I just, you know, it just it was unsettled. I had some pain. Uh, there and was there, those are the symptoms you're talking some about. Some symptoms, yes. And then obviously, you know, when you have colon cancer, there's there's issues. When, you know, bathroom, like you can't feel. You feel like sometimes, you know, you, you're never you're never done, or you're, you mm. you just can't have a have a complete sitting where you feel like you've done what you needed to do in the bathroom, and then you could move on. So. Mm. As I got closer, I kind of thought, well, maybe I just, you know, some anxiety. You know, I'm leaving Cruz and Courtney behind, so maybe it's that. And then it got to a point to where I needed to go to the doctor. I remember Courtney and some of her her, her mom's uh, sisters, they, we had a birthday party one day, and they, they, they I, I actually remember them kind of crying and telling Courtney, like, something's wrong with him. He looks khaki. Like, he, his color's gone. He's got something's wrong. He needs to go to a doctor. So I kind of put it off, and then when we did try to go to the doctor, I couldn't. I didn't. I didn't have a doctor in Thibodeau because never you hadn't been. been yeah. I hadn't been. So had to have a friend refer me to uh, a doctor. And when I went in and kind of described what was going on, he said, "Man, I, I don't. I don't like what I'm hearing." They took some X-rays, and then they took blood. So he said, "Look, come back in a day, and then you know I'll see the results of your blood." So when I got when I got back was when Doc looked at me and says, look, we're admitting you to the hospital today. He says, like, you're anemic. He says, your levels, he says, like, I don't know how you're standing up. Whoa. He said, there were some things that I saw in the x-rays that kind of scare me. He said, but you're going straight to the, to the doctor. So we reported. I checked into Thibodeau Regional. One of the, uh, the lower GI guys, one of the doctors came in and looked at, the, looked at just the blood levels. And, and he says, um, Jesus, I really don't know how you're standing up. He said, we're going to start doing some blood transfusions. I had two, 
three bags of blood. That's how low I was on blood. He said, we're going to do a colonoscopy in the morning. He says, I'm going to tell you right now. He goes, he goes, if we don't find some type of cancer, he said, I'll be shocked. Mm. So you're sitting there alone. The last thing that you, you think is, you know, God, man, I'm, I may have cancer. So went in the morning. First thing we did, they did the colonoscopy. And, of course, I'm asleep. But I remember talking to Courtney after because they had my parents and they had her parents there. And I remember she said that the doctor went in and said that he's, he's got cancer. And he's actually, I had, I had two tumors. So I had sigmoid uh, and then I also had like colorectal. So I had two tumors. And I remember the doctor, Courtney, Courtney telling me that uh, she said when they said you had cancer, you know, she said both our parents started crying. She goes, but I stood up and said, look, this, we're not crying. We're going to kick cancer's ass. And, and we did. Now, look, it was to tell you that I wasn't shocked would be a lie because when, when I finally came through and they wheeled me back, I remember being wheeled back to the room and sitting down and talking to her. And she showed me the pictures of the colonoscopy. We looked at the two tumors and just like, what does that mean? Is that, does that mean, you know, am I going to live? Am I going to am I ever going to coach again? Because that's one of the things we talked about. And she said, she said, not only are you going to coach again, she said, but you're going to be better than you've ever been. And she said, she said, it's not, it's not an option. We're kicking cancer's ass. Mm -hmm. So from that point, you know, once you get the doctor comes in and then they kind of lay everything out, you kind of feel better to to start the process. But I'm not going to lie to you, Brad, for for a day or so. I mean, you kind of don't know, you don't know what to think. You know, you don't know, you know, what stage, where is it at? Because I never really thought about cancer. I was too young. I was 43 years old. It was, um, it wasn't in, in my family's history. Um, you wouldn't, you know, you don't have to start really doing colonoscopies until you're, you're 50, you know, for, but, but, you know, like we talked about thinking, thinking about symptoms and how fortunate I was because there's, there's a good friend of mine. I don't know if you remember Darren Fonts. Mm-hmm. Darren Fonts was, he was a radio guy that would travel with us, you know, on the bus uh, when I first started at Nichols in 96, KTIB, it's a little radio station in Thibodeau. You know, now Nichols has branched out to, to bigger stations, but they would cover all football, baseball games. Well, me and Darren became pretty close. It was the same thing with Jerry Blackwell. We were all kind of in that group. And Darren, you know, had the same thing as I did. But it was later on, and it was a stage four. It was um, where he didn't find out till later, and, and he ended up losing his life. So I think every day, you know how fortunate I am that I did have symptoms, because you, as you go in and you research the disease, it's not a, it's not an old man's disease. It's amazing, um, you know. Obviously, once you start really finding the background of of colon cancer, of of, you know, guys that are 20 years old, 19 years old, 25 years old, you always think of colon cancer is like an old man's disease, you know, something that's later in life. And I tell everybody every day, you know, if something don't feel right, you need to go to the doctor. I was, I was fortunate because I did have some symptoms where I eventually went to the doctor. Plus, my two tumors were slow growing, and I didn't have anything in the lymph nodes. Like Dr. Beck said, because everything for me was done in Thibodeau, all the radiation, chemotherapy. I had, a, I had two sessions of those. I had pre-chemotherapy uh, and radiation, which lasted, you know, six weeks. Where I would go in, they put a port in, and they hooked me up to a pump, and I had chemo running through my body Monday through Friday, and they would take me off, and then I would have the weekend to recover, and then I'd go back in on Monday, and we'd do the same thing over again. 
And then while I was, um, you know, having chemo, I was also, they were doing radiation because they wanted to shrink it and kill the tumor. And I was fortunate that, because usually they don't do chemo and radiation at the same time, but because the two tumors were so close, they felt like they could go in and double zap it. And because I was young, I mean, I was 43 and relatively healthy, they felt like they could be super aggressive. And the doctors never said anything about, uh, you know, it being terminal. They, they, they felt like we could have, um, you know, we could have success and that we could cure it. And the, the one thing about uh, colon cancer is, is that if it's going to come back, it usually comes back within the first year. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and I'm, I'm six years out wow. and got a clean build and uh, very fortunate. Look, I, I mean, that changes your life just from the aspect of, you know, the way you see things, the way you talk about things. And we did, and, and and there was never there was never a time through the whole process because it started like in August, and I think my last my last chemo treatment was July the fifteenth, and I remember ringing the bell, started a new job, and we never once you know thought that you know it was going to be anything but a successful mission, and and you know through through uh, you know obviously my family and my friends. We were able to get that done, and, and we did kick cancer's ass. Awesome. You look great, Coach. Well, I appreciate that, Brad. So you said you, the way you see things is different. The way you talk about things is different. In what ways do you see things differently now than you did before? You know, the little things that you think are important, whether it's, you know, losing a baseball game or maybe not having some of the things that you, you wanted in life or maybe just little things day-to-day that would bother you you know, a response or maybe somebody not agreeing with a decision that you made or, you know, when you get into the coaching profession, I mean, you, if you don't have thick skin, then you're not going to make it because it doesn't matter, you know, what you do. People are always going to criticize and judge and you never, you're never going to make everybody happy. Um, but I think once you realize when, you know, that decision of how, how fine of a line life is, all of a sudden, those things became secondary. Obviously, you know, having crews and your family and your wife, those things come first. So those other things that maybe you would put in front of them, now all of a sudden really doesn't matter. And the, and the coaching aspect, too. I mean, just dealing with players, you know, dealing with, with people, things that would, you know, upset you or maybe would go to the top of the list and seem like they were more important than dealing with your family or, or getting home and having supper or having conversations with, you know, your wife and, and your kids about what happened that day or, you know, what we're doing tomorrow or, or what they, they see as important in life. Those things all of a sudden go all the way to the top of the list. And, the, and you know, the game that we play baseball is just the game or things that you encounter in life. There's a lot of times, and I try to tell my players this, you know, there's going to be times when – uh, as a man, you know, you're not going to want to get up some days. Maybe, maybe your boss isn't, isn't the best boss in the world. Maybe, um, you know, people are against you for no reason. And all of a sudden, those things don't matter. You still get up. You don't, you let, let kind of let that slide off the back of your back and you know what's, what's important. And I think that kind of shifted everything for me because a lot of times as a baseball coach, you're so focused about, you know, winning and losing. Or maybe what's the next game or what we need for the program and then other things get pushed behind. All of a sudden that stuff wasn't wasn't important. It was all about, you know, spending time because you realize how precious time is and, and spending spending time with the ones that, you know, you love the most. So 
it's been it's been good. Was it hard on you, Cruz? You were emotional while he was talking. You know, he's pretty he's pretty good. He you know at that point in time he was kind of like his mom. You know, just kind of put his head down. We told him everything was going to be okay. You know, there's going to be some times where Dad is not going to feel real good, and we're not going to be able to do some things. Ultimately, at the end, we're going to come out of this better. What a model for you to have, huh? Having a strong dad like that. That is awesome. You were raised Catholic, I presume? Yes, Catholic. Still a Catholic? Still a Catholic. How did your relationship with God change as a result of that? You know, that's a good question because, you know, God's always been there for me. I mean, I don't think I've, I'm not the biggest religious person. You know, I'm not the guy that's going to wear it on its on it, on his sleeve. I feel like nobody down here is. <laughs> when you go to the Bible Belt parts of the country, they do. But down here, for whatever reason, people don't talk about God. Right. They don't. And, and not really trying to push religion or push anything on somebody else that, uh, you know, maybe they're they don't believe in or they, you know, they choose to believe in something else. God is, God has always been, uh, I think he, he only gives you what you can handle. He only puts that on your plate. And I think for me, what, what he gave us at that time probably was, you know, meant because one, it helped me kind of, you know, health wise, straighten up my life. Cause look, when you're, you're on the road and you're coaching college baseball and you're driving back and forth, sometimes you don't have the healthiest habits and with me living in Thibodeau and driving to New Orleans, carving out time to actually have some physical activity, you know, baseball at times can cause you to uh, have some late nights where, you know, sometimes the stuff that you're drinking isn't the healthiest for you. <laughs> so I think at that point in time, it won, it, it, it helped me kind of get, you know, focused back into my life. You know, God steered me down a path where I needed to, to make sure I took care of family, I took care of myself put those things in order and made it a priority. And then, you know, once again, it's, it's kind of led me back to, you know, the last two schools that I've worked for have been, you know, Catholic schools, kind of where I started. So, you know, having God every day, we, we pray before every class and intentions and, and just being in a school where, uh, you know, the spiritual part is as important as the, the academic part. So, I think God has God has put me back on the right path, and and uh, He's always there when I when I need Him. And uh, like I said, I don't think He ever gives you more than what you can handle. So you turned to God during that time when you were diagnosed. You spent a lot more time in prayer. Do you think, or were you too busy on WebMD and doing Google searches? <laughs> you know, I didn't. I really didn't want to know, Brad. I was one of those guys. Like I really didn't ask a whole lot of questions once they mapped out. Okay, you're gonna have radiation three times a week. You're going to do chemo five days a week, um, you know, for so many weeks. And then we're going to give you give the body time to rest. And then we're going to have surgery. Then we're going to have the post-chemo on the backside. You know, I, I think it gave me more time just to reflect. Because a lot of time, you know, Courtney was still working. Cruz was at school. So it was me and dog, me and the dog at the house, you know, that had time. Because I was alone a lot, you know, mm. just because... Um, you know, people still, their life still was, was moving forward. Um, I'm not going to lie. I mean, the chemo and the radiation took a lot. I mean, it was, there were some days where you were just flat exhausted or just the chemo would just, you would have the chemo brain or, you know, you just didn't feel like doing anything. So I had more time to think, a little self-reflection, you know, think about what was important, what's going on. So I think that aspect of it, yes, you know, maybe not, you know, always praying all the time, but you know, always thinking about, you know, what's important or what I need to do different or how fortunate I am or 
um, you know, really being thankful for all the gifts that I have, that I have, I have uh, supportive people around me. You know, not only just just my wife and um, Cruz, but also, you know, mother-in-law and father-in-law were, were outstanding. And so was, you know, my mom and my dad to be able to have, you know, people like that who would do anything for you, no matter what it what it what it was or what it took. So I was very, um, very appreciative of that. So when I was a kid, it seemed like 40 years old was the age at which you got a colonoscopy. Or have they pushed that back to yes, 50? It's usually 50. I think they recommend, unless it's in, in your family, you know, that around 50 is when you start having the screenings. So for me, that's what we were talking about. One, I didn't have a history. We didn't have any really cancer history in my family. And with me being at an age, I was 42, 43 years old. So that wasn't on the list. And that's one of the great things uh, about being symptomatic. Because if I wasn't symptomatic, then it could have kept progressing to where by the time we actually found that I had a problem, it was too late. Yeah, because it would have been seven years before you went and got a colonoscopy. Correct. So your advice to listeners who are about my age, would it be just to monitor if you're having irregular pains or if you feel like you can't go enough to the bathroom, or maybe blood, if you see anything like that? Anything else we should be looking for? No, that's the that's the biggest. I mean, the body's going to tell you. I mean, that's that's the thing. I didn't listen to my body for a little while. I mean, I, I kind of because I one I didn't lock I didn't like the doctor uh, when I was young. I think everything from you know tonsils and adenoids. You know, I was a kid that was kind of sickly when I was when I was young. So I remember being in hospitals and or doctors' offices. Didn't like shots. Didn't like nurses. So. I was fortunate from that point because, you know, I was pretty healthy through my teenage years and obviously my my young adult years and didn't do checkups, didn't do things. So my advice now, especially, and I think the, the medical world has done a better job, like even Cruz, since now it's it's part of the family history, he's going to start getting checked earlier in his life than before because now it's got a chance that it could be, you know, it could be passed down. Uh, I would tell everyone if you know go to a doctor get your checkup especially if you're you're young don't think if there's things that you feel that aren't aren't normal go get checked because it's, it's as simple as getting a little bit of blood work because they can they can tell by the levels you know if if there's uh you know a chance but take care of your body stay stay on top of your health you know don't wait till it's too late so that's just a matter of going to your primary care physician and saying hey i had a buddy who had cancer they detected it at, he was 43. Can I just get some blood work done just right. to make sure I'm okay? Yeah, they can tell a lot just by those levels. Looking, and I, it's it's crazy, but I I know a lot of my friends, guys that were were my age, after kind of always diagnosed, and it and it wasn't just you know the colon cancer. It was amazing. Guys were more alert. Like if something just started to hurt or it didn't feel like that, they were paranoid. They thought you know well maybe I have skin skin cancer. Maybe I have you know a uh, lung or whatever they were they started like their awareness was more heightened just because somebody they knew you know had cancer and was like well, well this isn't supposed to happen it's not supposed to happen to, to people that are relatively young and are pretty active so yeah i think it's it's, it's amazing and it's amazing too brad when just in my neighborhood talking to, to neighbors who really you don't talk about those things but once they find out that you diagnose to hear the stories, I mean, there's so many people that are touched by cancer. It really is. I mean, and and illnesses or or 
um, people that you never thought would have had cancer who who's fought those battles and and had it and it's um it's really it's a horrible disease it really is it must be neat though to see the outpouring of love you know a, a lot of people don't get to hear it because they're gone right but right. when you live through it and you realize man i'm really loved yeah i am and and i was really fortunate too and it and you know it's amazing um you know just whether it was my family or or, or courtney's family how, how you know people just go out of their way to make sure that you're taken care of or you're loved or you know know that they're concerned if anything you need will will do for it will mm-hmm. do for you so that part of it was really really cool you know because sometimes you just you get in your own little world you don't realize how fortunate you are you know to have the people that are around you so yeah i'm definitely blessed and, and I'm, I'm definitely lucky because you know like i said um though i i guess as doc would have would have said you know if you're going to get cancer he said you probably got the best one really i heard thyroid was the best one to get That's probably too probably okay. so but at that time I Shit, I think I had Brian Roundtree on the podcast say that his was the best, best kind cancer. to get. He had lymphoma, I believe. Really? Well, I know Doc had said, you know, when we had talked, he said, look, 95%, if you catch it early enough, colon cancer is the survival rate. So he said, we feel pretty fortunate. And I guess, you know, also when they went in, I didn't have anything spread to the lymph nodes or anything mm-hmm. as well. So that's why they felt really, really confident that not only we could get a cure, but uh, that they were going to be highly successful, and they, and they thought that, you know, our chances were going to be really, really good that, uh, you know, it wouldn't come back. So That's great. I, I have a buddy that has diverticulitis. Yes. Is, is that similar in nature? At least this, it sounds like the symptoms yeah, might be similar. Yeah, there's some symptoms. There's a lot of issues just with, you know, bathroom and, and pain and, um, you know, not having, I guess you could say, uh, normal bowel movements. Um, you know, that's, that's all the same stuff. And at one point, I thought, you know, we kind of thought, um, maybe that was something that I was having, but you know, obviously it wasn't. Once they took took the X-ray and they did the colonoscopy, um, that was that was you know obviously eliminated. But you hear a lot of people who have issues, you know, with uh, with the bathroom. You, know, you, have, you have irritable bowel syndrome, or you have people that just you know they, they, it, it's a lot of I guess they cause a lot of pain amongst themselves just because they have the the you know they're scared to use restrooms, public facilities, and you know they can only only want to use the restroom at home so anxiety and other issues can can cause problems so no i'm, I'm fortunate i didn't have any of those issues you can take a dump anywhere huh? anyway <laughs> and look when you when you become a you become a colon uh you know you colon cancer you you appreciate when other people talk about you know problems or you know being able to go anywhere but if you have any stigma about going to the bathroom once you have colon cancer you have no more stigma mm. you can use it anywhere and we have a bidet here in, in oh, the master awesome oh you got to get uh, one it changes your life i'm trying to get one at the house I'm, I'm i'm getting some pushback between Cruz and courtney so oh no once you go to it you'll never go back we lived in asia for a while and i remember thinking how dirty americans were after having used a bidet every day for months right. and thinking i can't believe i went my entire life without a bidet it's life-changing, dude. That's what I hear. Everybody <laughs> talks about it. Maybe maybe one day, maybe for Christmas, Brad, or maybe we'll get that as a Christmas present. You know, I grew up with a brother, and they had no girls in the neighborhood, which was really good for me because I had a, I, you know, I was into girls a lot when I was young. And so we focused on sports. But I swear to you, 
I didn't think girls went to the bathroom until I was <laughs> call, in college, probably. Right. I was talking to my brother about this one time. I said, um, Scott, do you remember how we thought girls didn't go to the bathroom growing up? He said, yeah, but, but now that you've been married quite a few years, I mean, it's obvious now girls go to the bathroom. He goes, no, I don't think my wife goes to the bathroom. <laughs> That's funny. Man, they can, they can no, hide I've, some shit. Yeah, same, uh, <laughs> same thing. You just never saw girls in that light. You know, there was no way they were going to the bathroom. That's right. No way. So women are just as likely to get this yes, as men? Yes, it's, it's, it's pretty common in women as well, yes. Okay, man, do you want to do some fun questions before we cut out? Sure. All right. Social media, do you think that's a net positive or net negative for society? I tell you what, I'm glad we didn't have that when I was in school. I would have to say it's a it's a positive, Brad, just because I, I enjoy it, even though I'm not a I'm not a Facebook guy. I think I might be the only guy in the world that doesn't have a Facebook page just because as a coach sometimes I didn't I didn't want everybody kinda of running me down. Now I have Twitter, I enjoy Twitter, I enjoy uh, you know, obviously my wife, she's a big Facebook fan and there's a lot of things that go on, uh, that she, she'll relay or I'll kind of watch TikTok, things like that. So I think it's, I think it's a positive. Do you have a favorite major league ballpark? I do. My favorite one right now is uh Wrigley field. I love Wrigley field. You think they're ever going to do to Wrigley what they did to the old Yankee stadium? I don't think so. I think they've spent so much money here in the past couple of years of remodeling the stadium and basically, you know, tearing out the guts and redoing it. And it's so unique. If you've never been to Wrigley, just that afternoon, like that afternoon game with a hot dog and a beer, mm-hmm. sitting out uh, in the bleachers and watching that game with the Ivy, I think that would be a travesty if they ever did anything to Wrigley Field. In 2014, I had taken a job at a Fortune 500 company, and my boss told me that he likes to give his guys the day off on their birthday. And I said, well, I had planned to ask off the Friday before 4th of July because my brother and I are going to take my dad to Wrigley Field. And he said, okay, if you want to take that day off, take that instead. That's fine. That was the only day I took off the entire year. And I got this work ethic from my dad. He set that example for me. But we took him to Wrigley Field, and he tells people that was the best weekend of his life, going to Wrigley Field. So we grew up in this area and had WGN on television, so we pulled for the Cubs. I thought the TBS broadcast of the Braves was boring. When you watch it, it would put you to sleep. But Harry and Carrie and Steve Stone, boy, they were on in the afternoon and and watching Sean Dunstan and Jody Davis and Keith Moreland and Sandberg. And, man, I just love the Cubs. I couldn't wait to watch them every afternoon. Are you a Cubs fan? I watch the Cubs, you know, just because uh, Cruz has interest in the Cubs. I'm not the biggest – I mean, I'm a Red Sox fan at heart. And, and tell you the truth, I've always been a Nolan Ryan fan. When I was growing up, Nolan Ryan was a guy. So I kind of followed his career. It's kind of the teams that I rooted for. When I was growing up, it was the Astros and the Rangers. And I know, you know, back before he was with the Angels and also the Mets. But um, I was an Astro and a, and a Ranger fan for a long time just because of Nolan Ryan. I looked through your Twitter before you got here and saw that you had posted an article about Nolan Ryan that said that he had nine teammates that named kids after him. Right. That's incredible. You know, I was fortunate enough. I grew up with a guy by the name of Gerald Alexander, who Pitched at Downsville, Downsville High School. 
pitched at Tulane, was drafted by the Rangers, and he made it up to the big leagues when Nolan Ryan was a part of that club. So I was fortunate enough when he got called up, flew out because me and Jock would spend time um, during the summer or even during the, during the winter. I would catch bullpens for him. He would catch bullpens for me. So we were really good friends. So I got to go up and see a couple games. I actually missed his seventh no-hitter by a day. Mm. We went up that weekend, and he said, look, I'm going to bring you in the clubhouse. And uh, he said, that way you can see what's going on. Well, it was so cool. One, when you walk down to Old Ranger Stadium, you can see all the players' cars where everybody's driving, you know, Lamborghinis or, uh, you know, Jaguars or whatever. Nolan Ryan had a Suburban truck. I mean, an old four-door Suburban that he parked. He didn't have anything crazy. And what I remember the most, Brad, about walking into that locker room, I looked, they had some really good players. They had Goose Gossage. They had um, Pudge Rodriguez. They had a lot of great players. Palmero was on that team. And I remember Jacques' locker was right next to Nolan Ryan. So when we walked in, everybody's jersey was hung up. All right? So this is about a year or two before Nolan's getting ready to retire. Was Next to Jacques' locker, Nolan had two lockers, and he had plexiglass in front of his lockers, and his jersey wasn't hung up. So I looked at Jacques. I was like, is Nolan not coming in today? He was like, mm-mm. He said the reason why they don't hang up his jersey is because if they hang up his jersey and he's not in his locker, the players are going to take his jersey. They're going to take it and have him autograph it so they can't leave his stuff out. I said, well, why the plexiglass? He said, it's the same thing. He said, this guy's, you know, obviously the, the greatest pitcher that's ever lived. He said, if his stuff is not locked, like people are going to steal his shoes. They're going to steal his sliding shorts. They're going to take his belt. And this is big league players in the clubhouse. We're not talking about just anybody. Mm-hmm. And I remember Nolan Ryan walking in and sitting down. He was the... He was the biggest man I've ever seen in my life, Brad. It was amazing. His shoulders were so big and massive and broad. I remember his hips because you always talk about pitchers, their hips and their thighs. He was a giant of a man. Mm. And he sat down, Jacques sat down, and then Goose Gossage got off the bike and came by and introduced himself. I didn't even recognize Goose Gossage because he didn't have the he didn't have the hat on. He had skinny legs. He didn't look like the same guy that's always on the mound. He had the you know obviously the mustache. And I remember he put his hand on my shoulder, and it felt like it went down to my waist, Brad. Mm. His hands were so big, and he introduced himself. He says uh, he says Does Alexander pay you to be his friend? <laughs> and I, I could I could barely get no sir out of my mouth, but I just remember that experience of you know seeing Nolan and and players, you know, taking his stuff if it was out of them. I mean, he physically sat down before the club. He hung his jersey up. Mm. It was an awesome experience. That is awesome. I was in ninth grade. This was August '94. My dad and I were driving to Louisiana from Houston, and we stopped at an Exxon station in Baytown. And he asked me to go inside and pay the bill. And there was a guy in front of me in line that had calves the size of softballs. One of his calves had a tattoo. And that just told me that he was somebody for whatever reason. So I went around his shoulder to to peek and see who it was. And luckily, there had just been a segment on SportsCenter about the Ken Caminiti's alcoholism. And so I recognized his face. Well, the first thing you think is be cool, like don't, right. so that you don't lose your mind and, and not be able to think of what to say. So I said to him, what's your name? And he goes, he looked down at me and he goes, Ralph. And I said, 
I want to do what you do someday, Ralph. And he goes, it's fun. And then we had a little conversation. They were on strike at that time. I thought I could get his autograph. Now, of course, you would take a selfie with him. Correct. But I enjoy this conversation way more than bothering him about an autograph. And he's already told me that his name is Ralph. So anyway, when I went out to the car and got, got in the car with my dad, who had been pumping gas, I said, uh, Dad, did you see that man that came out before me? He goes, yeah, who was that? He told me I had a good kid. I said, he told you you had a good kid? <laughs> oh, man, it totally that's made awesome. my day, yeah. yeah that's awesome. So being able to interact with big leaguers is something you never forget. Nope. The loudest college ballpark you've been to? You would think I would say LSU, but it was actually Texas A&M. I believe that. Their football stadium is, is probably comparable to LSU's Death Valley. So it doesn't surprise me that the baseball field would be loud, too. And they were so knowledgeable. Like, they knew who your parents were. It's like they, the student section was usually right behind, uh, when we played, right behind, you know, the visiting team's dugout. So not only was... By design. The, by design. Not only was the stadium loud, but also the student section, they were meticulous. They, they, they knew where you lived. If you had a girlfriend, it seemed like they knew who your girlfriend was. They were really, they were exceptional as far as ragging on guys. Did they know the girlfriend's mom? Because a lot of times in, when I played, people knew who my girlfriend's mom was. Well, you remember that? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That is so true. Best high school ballpark you've been to? Well, that's a good one. Um, the best high school baseball park I've been to has to be Barb. Barb University in Lake Charles. They, they University? Have, well, they call themselves Barb U because, you know, obviously they've had the history of so many players that have gone through that have, that have either gone on to play Division One baseball or have made it to uh, professional baseball. So Barb by far has the best high school baseball facility in the state of Louisiana, hands down. Wow, I didn't know any of this. I played high school ball in Houston. So it's B-A-B-B-A-R-B-E? Correct. And it's 4A, 5A? It's 5A. They, you, they're usually ranked every year. They're always in the, the top 10 USA Today. The coach that's there is Glenn Cicchini. His, his two boys were both highly drafted players, one with the Red Sox. Gar, it was uh, Garen and Garvin, I think, are the two boys' names. One was a shortstop, was drafted by the Mets, like in the second or third round. Um, Joe Lawrence was a, was a big-time player back in my day that was a Louisiana high school player of the year. Made it up to uh, AAA, maybe had a little cup of coffee in the big leagues, but he's also a owner uh, with Marucci in Baton Rouge, him and Kirk Ainsworth, who uh, is another guy that I was fortunate enough to be around that, that played and, and had a lot of success with those two guys or, or um, you know, co-owners. And uh, Barb's just got a great tradition of, of players. I mean, I, I, I bet you this year on their high school team, they probably have six kids that are going to Division One baseball, and it's all Mississippi State, LSU, Rice, Arkansas. Dang, do kids move to that area no, so sure they can they go do. there? You know, and right now, too, Brad, that area of the state seems like they're producing the, the elite of high school baseball right now. Sam Houston, uh, Barb, Sulphur, just that area of the state seems like, and I think I'm sure some of it is, is you, you're probably getting some kids from Texas that are – that are moving in to that direction, that's a super, super baseball program. And Glenn has done a great job. I mean, he's he's coached uh, the USA, um, you know, the amateur team, the high school team, the 18 and under. He's he's a guy that's got a lot of uh, baseball influence and 
Um, he's all over the world. He's a really good baseball coach. And that's in Lake Charles, huh? Lake Charles. So Lake Charles is like the halfway point between where we are now, New Orleans, and Houston. Do you have a favorite baseball-related website? Could be a blog, could be anything, really. I really like um, D1 Baseball because it covers, you know, the mass amount of college baseball. Obviously, I still have interest in, in college baseball, whether it's friends of mine that are coaching or just interest in programs. Uh, D1 Baseball does abroad. It kind of gives you an idea of scores and teams and conferences and better players and kind of what's going on in, in college baseball. So I tend to uh, to kind of migrate to that, that website a lot. Is coaching – college baseball much more time consuming than coaching high school baseball? Oh, without a doubt. Between the recruiting, uh, just the season, you know, you, you have a fall and a spring, whereas in high school, uh, you, be just, you just have a, a spring season. And then the summer now is even a little different because you have some guys that either move on and they'll play showcase baseball or uh, there's still a little bit of high school baseball where you'll keep your team for the next year. And maybe play, you know, three or four weeks till about the middle of June just to get an idea of, you know, what's what's going to happen next year and maybe give some guys some experience that haven't haven't had a whole lot. So it's a lot less. And the recruiting aspect is the one, Brad, that's the that's the biggest. I mean, that's that's kind of what uh, at the end separated me from always on the road, sitting in ballparks, uh, trying to recruit, you know, 18 to 20, 20 year old males you know and in this time it seems like guys hold things closer to closer to their vest now they don't uh, they're not as honest maybe as what they were years ago so it's it's harder and it's also the social media aspect we talk about you know everything's now if they get an offer you know they got to post something it's it's all about me it's that i syndrome instead of you know the we or the team um it's it's the game's kind of going in a different direction a little bit yeah, I mean, if you went three for four and stole a base and somebody tweeted that, like let's say I played today and Cruz was a fan and he said Brad D'Antonio went three for four, posted my stats, I would retweet that, right? Isn't that how that works? How Isn't that done. weird? And then so five different people were at the game and they they post that. I, I mean, I follow some Nichols football players and, you know, they had five catches for 112 yards. I see it seven times in my mm-hmm. feed and I'm like, I can't follow you anymore, right. you know? I don't want to see your stats that much. Yeah, it's uh, it's a different it's a different world. It's a different time. And getting back <laughs> to that say. social media question, I mean, it's just it seems like that's the norm. You know, if they if they it's like the offer stuff. It's the high school kids that get an get an offer. You know, and they're they're yes. it's, it's blessed and thank you. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's uh, who cares? You know, just let's first you know make a decision, go where you want to go, and then when you get there, let's see what you do. You know? Well, that's kind of a negotiating gambit, right? Like, yes. I thank you. I'm so blessed to receive this offer from Nickel State, and now I'm going to get one, hopefully, from McNeese, and then I'm going to use that as leverage. Right. I even saw an owner, that billionaire owner of the Mets, recently tweeted, what do you think Lindor will accept? He signed a 10-year, $340 million contract. It was twice the size, I think, of any Mets signing ever i think david wright had signed for like 138 million correct you're managing a game seven in the big leagues you have to give the ball to one pitcher who is active right now so you can't choose nolan ryan who you're going with i'll tell you what the guy that i would go with if i had to have a game seven would be justin verlander 
Mm. He's been nails for a long time through mm-hmm. different organizations, and he's just got that that makeup. You know, a lot of times it's it's makeup over talent, and yeah. you know, he's that that nasty guy that I wouldn't have any problems handing him the baseball in Game Seven. Yeah, he's got that fire and de- determination. He's getting old though, huh? What he is, is he? Thirty six, thirty seven, something like that. He's been doing it for a little while. He's definitely on the back end of it. There's no doubt. Okay, let me ask you a situational question. It's bottom of the ninth. Jose Altuve on first. You're down one run. Nobody out. Bregman's at the plate. Let's say Brantley is on deck, followed by their first baseman, Uriel. I think you say his name. Are you asking Bregman to bunt in that situation? No. I'm, I'm letting him hit, and at some point, we're going to start a runner. I just, I know in in big league baseball, probably you know in high school baseball, and I don't even know in college baseball anymore because there's so much into the analytics and you have hit tracks and you have all this data now, you know, like going into LSU's hitting hitting meeting room. Uh, I have a friend Corey Clator who is the trainer at LSU, and he was my trainer here at Loyola. Uh, he was an LSU graduate. He also worked at Florida State for Mike Martin. So he's worked in some really good baseball programs. And uh, we went to Baton Rouge one day a couple of years ago and stopped by the stadium. He wanted to show Cruz. He said, hey, bring Cruz over. I think we were at a, at a high school coaches convention. He said, I'll show Cruz, you know, I'll show him the new Alex box. He can see all the, the insides. So when we went through the team meeting rooms, they have a defensive meeting room, an offensive meeting room. And they have this machine that's the same thing they're using in big league baseball for strikes and all the analytics. It costs about $90,000. And LSU has that. And it's, you know, behind home plate. And it can give you all the details on, you know, what they throw 90% of the time uh, when it's 0-1 velocity. Um, you know, what you, what you hit in certain counts in certain spots. And it's so much information, Brad. Uh, just so much information. I think guys now don't believe in the bunt. It's an analytical game where they don't believe in giving up an out. I, I think in, in big league baseball, you you wouldn't bunt in that situation. You know, I think even probably running would be a risky thing because, you know, there's a chance of, you know, giving up an out when you're paying these guys all this money to hit. So if I was managing with Altuve and the way he can run and, and the way Bregman can handle the bat, no, we would try to we would steal the base. I'd put a guy in motion at some point, you know, in that bat. I remember you asking me before the season started. We were on the Astro turf behind the weight room stretching. You came up to me and said, "Bradley D, how many bunt hits are you going to have this year?" It stuck with me. I remembered it all year, and I would look at the third baseman to see if he was back, so I could live up to coach's expectation that I was going to have a lot of bunt hits. Bunt. Yeah, that's a great tool that I think is being wasted. You know, in high school baseball, um, just like you know, now you try to educate your players to look for things. You want guys to be able to coach themselves without you coaching them. To me, that's a mark of a great coach that you you've coached your player and you've prepared him enough to where he can make some adjustments and he sees the game and there's things that he does instinctively or things that he recognizes inside of a game because it's just like calling pitches and and you have some programs where they call every pitch and they don't. I know as a former pitcher, I wanted to be able to control my own game because I wanted to be the guy, if I was going to get beat, I wanted to get beat with the pitch that I had the most conviction about instead of a pitch that somebody from the bench was calling who didn't have the greatest seat. It's a lost art. 
you know, bunting's starting to be a lost art, especially in in games like, you know, we have a kid right now that's kind of scuffling a little bit, and every time he comes up, you know, sometimes I'll put on the bunt, and he doesn't want to bunt, so he doesn't give me his, his, his effort. And I, and I tell him all the time, I said, look, if they're going to give you a bunt, are they going to give you a hit? That could be that one at bat that all of a sudden sparks some things and mentally puts you in a better place to where now you have some better at bats and you feel like some things are going your way. So don't take it for granted. When they're giving it to you, that's part of the game. You need that tool in your toolbox. Go ahead and lay it down and take that hit. Let's get this thing rolling. So I think that's some of the some of the things nowadays that in the uh, the little game or the game of baseball is being taken for granted. You know, bunts. When I see the shifts. I don't understand why a hitter wouldn't spend 20 minutes after practice working on hitting the ball the other way, especially as you get up in age. Like, you should have the maturity and the bat control to be able to go the other way. Like, look for a pitch on the outer third of the plate and get your hit and make them never put a shift on you ever again. I don't know why they don't do that more. See, I think that's an ego thing, Brad, because hitters at that level – as advanced as they are, they can do it. I think it's a macho thing. They're not, they're not going to shove it the other way. They'd rather try to hit, hit it, you know, hit through the shift mm. and show that. Look, that's what I'm getting paid for. I'm getting paid to drive the baseball, hit the baseball hard. I'm not going to push one the other way. Now, I did hear this one, and I don't know if it's in the minor leagues this year. I think they're talking about making it a rule where you can only have so many position players on one side of the base or the other. So I think they're moving towards stopping this shift analytics, putting everybody on one side of the base. I think they're talking about now where if you're going to make a shift, and I think it's in minor league baseball, where you can only have two position players either on the left side or the right side of the bag during any at-bat. Yeah. Yeah, they're talking about four infielders on the dirt at all times. Mm-hmm. I've seen other talk about just limit, limiting defensive shifts altogether. Yep. It would start in the minors, and I guess that would be a test. But they also talked about bigger bases bases. and robo-umps. I I would be a fan of (laughs) robo-umps, especially after those stories I told you earlier. What do you think of those rule changes? I don't know. I think think the bag is the bag. I I don't know why. You know, those bases have been big enough for for years since the game started. I understand a little bit about the shift thing, but then – I'm like you, you know, hitters, why wouldn't you try, you know, put the ego aside and, you know, hit the ball the other way. If they're going to give you, just like we talked about a bunt, if they're going to give you a bunt and take it, it's a hit. If they're going to give you the, the left side and it's wide open, why would, why would you not take that? I don't know that I agree with you on the ego thing because to me it would be like I'm a, a more well-rounded hitter. Watch me control the bat. Watch me time the the bat with the ball perfectly and hit the ball to left center field. I, I don't know why they wouldn't do that. Yeah. It, it boggles right. in my mind. But I see what you're saying. Maybe like a, a power hitter is like, screw you with this shift. I'm going to hit it over the shift right. is probably what they're thinking. I mean, like RTs, you know, think about guys with the Red Sox, where they would do the, the massive shift where you'd have three guys on the other bag and a third baseman, you know, is almost up the middle, and they would basically give him the whole left side. Um how many times you ever saw him try to shoot the ball through there? I mean, he would continue to try to either hit it over the shift out of the ballpark or just power the ball through the shift where, you know, it didn't matter. Yeah. I just don't think it's asking much to work on it 20 minutes a day. I think once you 
did it for six, seven days in a row, you'd be so confident you could at least try it in the game, if not hitting it, at least bunning for a hit. Because what you've done, I would see it as an investment in the next seven years of my career. Like, you can't ever put the shift on me again. I've bought myself openings in the outfield now that aren't there currently. Doesn't make sense to me. No, I agree with you 100%. And, and watching, you know, big league hitters, you know, not that I've seen a ton of them, but I remember Daryl Hamilton, you know, coming to our practice. And that was a guy that was a prototypical, you know, either a lead off or seven eight guy in the lineup and I remember watching him take BP and I always would tell our hitters you know watch watch him take BP he's a big league and he would pepper the ball around you know the first round would always be ground balls you know to the backside line drives to the backside then he would start pulling the baseball a little bit and then eventually in the last round he would actually turn and hit some balls out the yard but early on in the round everything was working the ball other way finding the barrel with the bat you know controlling the bat head so I think, you know, those guys can do it, especially at that high of a level. Um, I just I don't understand why the resistance has been there to, to not do that. I don't I don't understand it. Like I said, my my perspective is, is they're they're just trying to be, you know, macho because now we've really taken you look at big league baseball. They've taken a value off of average or strikeouts. They just they want to see you do some damage, do, hit some doubles, you know, hit some hit a home run because you think about it. And I, I can't remember who said this, but I was watching a TV show, and it was on Sports Center, and they were, or maybe it was the MLB channel, and one of the kids of a big league player passed by the TV and was watching the game, and as soon as as soon as the hitter hit the ball on the ground, the his son would go, "You're out," because think about it, balls on the ground in the big leagues are outs. I mean, guys don't make errors; they don't misplay balls. I mean, how many times? I mean, how many times you see guys are trying to hit balls in the air because if they can, they can hit it over the fence or hit it over somebody's head, they have a chance of that being a hit. So I think that's why the game has kind of turned to the launch angle stuff because a ground ball or a hard ground ball in the big leagues is probably out 98% of the time. It's funny you say that. I gave a talk to the Nichols State baseball team. This was probably five years ago, and I brought my buddy that I mentioned earlier, Chase Lambin, and I spoke before him so that I could introduce him. And one of the, the things that I said in my talk was my job was to hit the ball on the ground. I just incorporated that into what I was saying. And then afterward, I asked him for some constructive criticism on my, my talk. And I, I wasn't looking for like the ins and outs of baseball, more like the delivery. And, and he said, well, at one point you said, hit the ball on the ground. We don't coach that anymore. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, the, the players are too good. Coaches have to be conscious of stating the obvious to kids. I, would be, I wouldn't be good at that. I'm not good at that in, in my marriage. Mm -hmm. I I need to state the obvious more. Is that something you're conscious of? Like, you don't, you can't know how much they know. So do you, do you think about that? I'm sure you worry about overcoaching sometimes, but the basic like, hey, choke up with two strikes, you know, like little things. Are you? No, you need to. You know, we, we talk about that a lot amongst our coaches is you can't assume. So yeah. I think you don't want to overcoach. You don't want to put, you know, too much, too much stuff in, in, in a player's head, but at times, you can't take for granted that they know what they don't know. So right. even the small things of choking up on a bat or 
hey, what about putting the sunglasses on your eyes instead of on your head when you're in outfield? Always want to be positive when they do stuff right, and you always want to coach when guys do stuff wrong. You know, in this in this time, though, Brad, I find that more kids nowadays they they see coaching as criticism. You know, they don't see it as you trying to help me, you trying to make me a better baseball player. It's like sometimes they just see you as well. He doesn't like me, or he's picking on me. But I think you're right, though. You you do have to point out the obvious because there's a lot of times we take for granted things that we think they know. But they don't. I mean, how do you go through, like in, in high school, the first first place that I went out of college, and went to a high school, and there's a senior who's a good runner. Uh, he's a really good baseball player, and he doesn't know how to bun. I mean, how does that and, – and you just assume that you don't have to go over the mechanics of, you know, how to bun, how to sacrifice bun, how to drag, how to push, and you have to talk to those talk to them about those situations. So – I think you're right. That's a good point. You you do have to point out the obvious and, and remind because sometimes we get so caught up and just, you know, sometimes we just see what players can't do or things that they lack in instead of seeing the positive things that they do and the good things that they do, but also telling them, hey, don't be afraid to make a mistake. It's okay, you know, to 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 be aggressive. It's okay to make a mistake when you're going all out and you're trying to make a play and reminding them of, the everyday things that you got to do as a baseball player. Yeah, something I'm going to be conscious of as I raise my daughter is whether or not she responds to challenge or criticism or whether or not she responds to praise, which is typically young boys will respond to challenge. But you're telling me that's changing. It's changing. That's interesting. Two-week vacation anywhere in the world. Where are you going? I would like to, if I had a two-week vacation, I would actually like to go down to the Florida Keys. Never been to the Keys. You know, you hear stories, you you see pictures, you see, you know, that, that blue water kind of, I don't want to be in the sand, Brad, like I'm not a beach guy, but mm-hmm. I don't mind looking out over the balcony or, you know, having a pair of shorts on with a flip-flops and, and, and a shirt and a drink that's kind of sweating a little bit, so you can't really tell. <laughs> Did he just start drinking, or has he been drinking for a little while? So I think the Florida Keys would be, a, um, you know, would be a great place to go. I know you, you're probably disappointed that I didn't say something like Rome or Italy or Paris or maybe Indonesia, but uh, Cruz would definitely want to go to some of those places. He's interested in that. Um, I think the Florida Keys would be pretty cool. Best purchase you've ever made under a hundred dollars. I'm not OCD, Brad, when it comes to, like, super cleanliness, but I need things to be in their place. Um, so having a house and and having a dog and, and a family, um, I'm kind of the Mr. Mom. Like, I wash clothes. I do all the stuff around the house. Uh, Courtney does a lot of uh, – she does the cooking. She takes care of the – she's a big picture one. I'm kind of the, the small picture guy. She bought me a dustpan and, and a broom to where I can go around. You know, if you have a dog and you have other things going on, you know, there's always stuff on the floor. And I like to keep things kind of neat and tidy. Uh, so before, I always had, you know, a broom or you had a vacuum and it was always taking things out. She bought something on Amazon. It's old school. It's a broom with the old school standalone mop pan. And I can go around and sweep things up or if things hit the floor, it's convenient. I can pick it up. I don't have to. I don't have to take it from the the vacuum cleaner to 
the garbage is just I don't know. It's just, just kind of old school. It makes me feel good because I can get things done pretty quick. It's pretty efficient. So that's my buy for under hundred dollars. Just an old, just an old dustpan. Good answer. And I believe that about you. I remember we were right near Courtney's office, about to take pictures one year for baseball, and you said to me, "Bradley D, you could have got that razor a little closer to your face." <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. And that's funny because I really hate to shave now, Brad. So I appreciate facial hair a lot more. I don't know. I guess the younger younger coach and me at that time, you know, everything had to be neat and tidy. And it was all about how you presented yourself. And back then, facial hair wasn't big. So that's true. I went five years without shaving until about a week ago. And the only reason I finally did is because when my baby touches my cheek, she, she doesn't like it. She turns her head real fast. So I shaved. My wife likes facial hair. So even our wedding, I didn't shave. And it was just like a five o'clock shadow, kind of like mm-hmm. what you got there. Awesome. Who is the person you look up to the most in baseball? Could be anybody. You know, my, my high school coach was, was pretty significant. And I talked about him early. Uh, Wade Seminole. He, he's the one that I think kind of got me into coaching because I just – to me, high school coaches, you know, those guys can either impact you in a really good way or they can impact you in a really bad way. And he was a guy who um, I enjoyed playing for. I thought he was fair. He um, he treated you, you know, like a man, and, and, and there wasn't a whole lot of fluff like we talked about. Um, he was also a great resource, you know, starting your career, just kind of uh, being able to, to talk to him about what you should or what you shouldn't do. He always gave great advice about uh, you know decisions and and how to make how to how to make that decision and making decisions that were important to you and not making a decision for somebody else but always make making a decision that uh, that you wanted. So uh, Wade is Wade was Wade is he still is he's uh, he's a great baseball guy and he's the guy that set me on this path because I, I he's the one that uh, instilled the the in, you know the the joy that I have for baseball, uh, the passion that I have for it, and he's he's the guy that showed me, you know, the way to do things right. I can't think of a better way to end this. The impact that you had on me was huge. If you don't give me a shot to play Division One baseball, I don't know how my life works out. So I want to thank you for that and tell you that I love you, man. If I can do anything for you ever, let me know. All right. same, same here, Brad. I mean, you've... You've always been uh, one of my favorites. You're always a guy that, that, as I look back on my time at Nichols or through my career, you was you were always one of those special guys that just had that it factor, man. And like I said, I, I love you as well, buddy, and, and I'm glad that we got to reconnect. And um, anything that I can do for you, you know, I'm always here to help. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. It's fun. Yeah, it was it a, flies, it was a doesn't it? It does does fly thank you so much friends thank you for listening i realize you could be doing anything in the world but you choose to tune in to coach g and i chat it up and i appreciate it if you enjoyed this episode please copy the link and share it with a friend and if you wish to follow my adventures on instagram and twitter i'm at man underscore overseas 